Uh, good evening, everyone. This meeting is called to order for the Mardi Gras edition of Men to Avoid Selectory Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. This meeting is being video recorded. Also, to address some uh, audio difficulties, have we now have a large boom mic set up over there. The boom mic is very sensitive, so I am uh, been instructed to admonish those who are here in person to keep their um, comments under their breath. For example, Bill Sorrow, if you are inclined to do so, um, like a cleaner. It, it will be picked up by the boom mic and could be disruptive to those around you. So I'm just warning you in advance that um, you know, make sure you share with the whole class if you're going to say something. <laughs> and I understand if you say anything offensive, you get boomed with the mic. Should I be sitting there? Where the name comes from. Is there a swear jar or something? <laughs> Um, and we will take a moment of appreciation to our meeting for our troops serving around the globe in defense of our country, particularly those who've been recently deployed to Eastern Europe, some of our allies there as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're going to note that we will enter into an executive session at the conclusion of tonight's meeting. For the purpose of discussing the personal exchange, lease, or value of real property to witness with State Hospital, and we will not return to open session at the conclusion of the executive session. All right, our first appointment is with uh, Town Clerk Mary Rinaldi, who has several requests for us this evening. Oh, yes, I do. Make your way Always. The podium, Clerk Rinaldi. So it is um, the request for a vote and for you to sign the election warrant for the election on March 28th, the annual town election, and a vote to appoint um, Tracy Clank as the warden of the election, and a vote to appoint the inspectors, election workers of the annual town election. Those are the inspection and election workers listed in the attachment to our agenda. Correct. Well, many thanks to our volunteers for doing that. Yes. Much appreciated. Uh, Pete, any, any questions, comments, discussion? None at all. Yes. None at all. I have none either. So would you like three separate motions here? Yes, please. All right. I move that we vote to, uh, we, uh, vote to sign the election warrant for the annual town election to be held on March 28, 2022. I second that. All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? All right. I move that we vote to appoint Ms. Tracy Clink as warden of the annual town election. Second. All in favor? Yeah. Aye. Any opposed? All right. And I move that we vote to appoint the inspectors to the annual town election. Should I read the names out, I think? Yes. As set forth in the uh, memo from the town clerk dated March 1st, 2022. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Next, uh, Bedfield Outreach to discuss the community needs assessment survey and request use of sandwich boards. Is this a Zoom uh, appearance for Bedfield yes. Outreach? Uh, there is a chance. Oh. Hi. Can everyone Hi. hear me? Can everyone hear me? Chelsea, we can't hear you. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Um, my name is Chelsea Goldstein-Walsh. I'm here on behalf of Medfield Outreach um, to request permission to use sandwich boards at the four designated locations. 
um, for a two-week period aiming to start March 14th. Um, and the purpose of those sandwich boards would be to uh, advertise or uh, communicate our community needs assessment survey that we would like the entire Medfield community um, to take. Um, and the purpose of that survey will be to inform our department and the greater community about what the needs are um, and to inform our future programming. Um, that and if possible, we'd love to use that digital sign that's located typically on Route 109 near the Peak House um, for the same purpose to let the community know about the survey. Actually, Chelsea, we're going to use the digital sign board, but we're going to announce it at the transfer station. Okay, that's great. Probably even better. Probably safer, actually. All right. Any questions? No questions. No questions. All right. I make the observation that I know this committee has been working hard in the survey, having uh, been involved in some of their meetings. So. Uh, yeah, I move, I move that we approve the uh, Medfield Outreach's request to uh, use sandwich boards, uh, I guess, at the transfer station to promote the uh, participation in their community needs assessment survey. So it was the sandwich boards at the four locations? Yeah, the sandwich board and the sandwich board at the four locations. So. Second. All in favor? Aye. Yep. Any opposed? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Uh, hi. I was, to, right oh, up here. <laughs> I was hoping to request permission to use utilize the state hospital uh, across the street from the state hospital as follow up Texas Q occupied that space last spring. Uh, we we're hoping to go up there more towards the end of April uh, through the end of May. And we ran into a few snow issues last April at the beginning of the month. Some wind made it a little difficult. I guess the, the only question I have is, is uh, uh, does the town benefit in this? Do we get a, a share of the proceeds at all, or how do we work in this now? So I believe uh, the last time we had dug in was during COVID, uh, when we said at that time we would not charge the, our license agreement fee, but then we would revisit that after COVID. So while I don't want to say COVID is over, um, we can probably reevaluate that. Great. Do we have a standard license fee? The only one that I've heard is the uh, couple thousand dollars a, a day for running the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be filming any movies. <laughs> um, I know in the past, in doing this quite often, not just here and other places, that there is usually a standard fee. Sometimes it's for a 15-day period, and anything after that is double, obviously, or triple for however long that you go. I think the, the Board of Health, uh, Nancy Bonnie, would probably have more input on that. And you're looking for about, I mean, you're looking for roughly 20 days, is that? Yeah, yeah, about 20 days. Because it's only Saturdays. I know last season we operated kind of Wednesday through Saturday, weather permitting. We're focusing only on Saturdays this spring, um, and obviously weather permitting as well. And so the Friday is mostly going to be set up? Is that the... No, no, because we set up the breakdown the same day. Oh. Okay. 
We have the request in here for Fridays and Saturdays. You just want Saturdays? Yeah, it's just Saturdays. Oh. Oh. Sorry about that. So less than two than 20 days. Then. Maybe 10, 10 Saturdays. Yeah, it's about 10, maybe 12 tops. Yeah. yeah I don't think we had a standard if you didn't really have any of this request pre-COVID. So this is sort of new. No, this is a new one. So we should probably come up with something like this. So do we want to take some time to figure that out and then... Uh, yeah, we can revisit it at the next meeting. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Of course. I think we approve the request. You want to propose a standard. Yeah, I'm fine with that. You know, whether it's per day or per season or something. We're not looking at it. Right. And just through, just, just through June, you don't want to talk about the summer? Or? No, not the summer. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So well, why don't we get a motion to approve the usage subject to the reason we be able to figure out. I move that we approve the request uh, for uh, Pollard's Texas Q to use the Medfield State Hospital from April 1st to June 18th on Saturdays, subject to agreement on the standard fee for the town. Second. All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? All right. Thank you. Good to have you back, Doug. Thank you. <laughs> Get there early. Sell <laughs> out. All right, we're going to welcome now uh, Director of Public Works for Lay for two items. This is here. You can discuss the intersections study and then also discuss pavement projects, including Route 109 and Willis. Great. Good evening. Um, at the Public Works, we, uh, you know, we look at the conditions of the roadways, we look at uh, the uh, intersections, we look at any kind of safety issues that we see, vehicle turning movement issues that we find in the town. Uh, with that being said, we looked at uh, a handful of intersections to study to incorporate into our pavement management program. And before we get into the construction seasons, we want to make sure that if we can incorporate these into the design or into the project, we do that, try to be proactive into getting them uh, you know, studied and contract with Niche Engineering out of Boston, and I have uh, Stephen Farr and Dina Albert from Niche Engineering to do a presentation to kind of show the, uh, the findings of what, um, what the study shows for those five intersections that we looked at, as well as um, any kind of safety issues that came about, and then possibly give their recommendations of any kind of improvements, but kind of want your feedback on what you think about um, these intersections and to see if it's feasible to incorporate into our construction project. So without ado, I will, uh, and any kind of questions we can take after that. Thanks, Noel. Uh, again, I'm Steve Farr from uh, Niche Engineering. I'm a city project manager and with Dina Albert, one of our uh, traffic engineers. We prepared a presentation that summarizes the report that we gave to Mo and I think he disseminated to the board of selectmen. Um, just go through this briefly. Oh, okay, great. Click this right to answer. Flip it over. Okay, so the study includes five intersections uh, in order on the screen here, and this is the way we'll look at them tonight is uh, Main Street and Bridge Street, West Mill and Adams. Harding and North Street, Harding and West Street, and the last one would be the South Street, Spring Street intersection. 
Okay, so this is the uh, the intersection of Bridge Street and Main Street. You can see Main Street on the bottom and it's labeled. And it's a T intersection with a little Delta Island in the middle there. I'll, uh, I'll advance the slide here again just to give you some photos. The top photo is uh, on 109 Main Street looking at Bridge Street. And you can see the little island there. And the main issue here, uh, other than some signage, there's no stop sign or a stop bar at Bridge Street as it approaches 109 Main Street. That's a major issue. But the Delta Island creates confusion with drivers. Um, each, each leg of that is wide enough for two lanes, although there's no direction or instruction to anybody on which side they should be on. There's no keep right sign. There's, again, I said no stop signs. There's no pavement markings, no double yellow center lines. So whereas it's wide enough uh, to be two lanes, Someone might approach on Bridge Street and be in the middle of the lane because they think the entire lane is theirs. And then if you've got somebody from 109 making a left or right, could be some conflicts there. So um, that's a major issue that we, we think should be addressed. And we have a concept here that actually removes the island and paves it over. It tightens up the, the uh, westbound Approach on 109, as you can see, there we've indicated the, the edge of the. Uh, I can use my mouse here, just slightly here. So, this is the edge of the pavement here, and again, tightening up this corner so that the speeds turning that turn are reduced greatly, and again, just formalizing the intersection so that it's very clear that you're supposed to stay on this side of the double yellow as you approach. On Bridge Street, you, you have clear indications of where to stop, and there's the stop line and stop bar that you recognize. So it's fairly straightforward, but we think that would be a great help to this intersection. Well, can we just stop sure. for that for a second? I think, um, obviously, Peter got some questions about this, but is this a project that would be done as kind of a standalone project, or does it have to be done in conjunction with other? This, this would be, be, this be, this be the Bridge like, Street reconstruction project. That's why we're we're bringing these intersections forward. That's why we're bringing these intersections forward because they're going to be integrated into our pavement management, which we have these projects kind of in the queue, and that's why we're looking to to see what's feasible to to do with these projects and what you know what can be affordable, what can't be affordable. And I just want to just make a point where it's not all the intersections that we studied in the town that that could use uh, that may have issues, and we we want to continue certain ones, but these are projects that we will be uh, doing construction projects for. This is definitely an intersection, having lived here for 25 years, I don't yet know whether I've ever gone through it the correct way. Right, yeah. <laughs> I haven't hit anybody, but I, I've never been able to know what I was really supposed to do. So right. And we, I we witnessed that with good intentions. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions before I move on? Do you have a sense, and, and, and I didn't see in the report, there was not, there was not a price tag. Is this sort of a, is this a project that is a, this is a fairly incorporated into a regular? Yeah, this is a fairly inexpensive one, yeah. only because the only, the, the real cost is just removing the island, everything else can be done with line painting and signage. Right. When is, when is Bridge Street scheduled? Uh, I believe three, in three years. Else? The next location that I'll talk about is West Mill at Adams Street. It's a little more complicated. 
intersection because you have the railroad crossing there just south of the West Mill Adams Street intersection. In the, uh, there's, the report goes into pavement markings and signage issues that I'll briefly touch upon. I won't go through all of them. The main issue here is the geometry of this intersection where, again, I'll try to get the cursor on there. Um, the, the, the vertical, the horizontal curve of, of West Mill Street is right at the intersection with Adams Street. And to make matters worse, this is actually the top of a little vertical crest curve as well. So if you're on either side of this intersection as you approach from the north or from the south, you don't see the other side of West Mill Street because of the horizontal curve and the vertical curve. Um, and so that, it, it makes it very tough to see people on Adams Street and it makes it tough for them to see anybody approaching from those directions on West Mill Street. That's the slide here a little bit. So this is these photos. Uh, the top photo is taken on um, Adams Street, looking south. Uh, one of the issues is there's a gravel patch, which is very tough to discern in that top photo. Um, it's like an island area, triangular grass uh, gravel patch right here, which is not a raised island, but again, would make it very difficult if someone were trying to stop in an emergency, and it would be like stopping on marbles. So I'm not sure why that's there, but we would recommend paving that over. Again, this is looking south, um, and the bottom photo is on uh, West Mill Street looking south as well, and you here get a sense of the, vert the horizontal curve and the vertical curve. You can really not even see Adams Street, which is here. If there was a car waiting to stop there, um, you may not see them, and most of all, you don't see anybody coming at you from the south. And one of the other issues with West Mill Street here is that it's it's banked in the wrong direction. We call that super elevation. Um, the the angle of the curvature here, you would expect the road to be banked sort of towards higher on the outside on this edge than on the than on the inside, but it's actually reversed. So that would lead cars to maybe trend towards the outside of the curve if you're going around this at any sort of speed and even if there's bad weather, it's even more dangerous. In fact, there was two crashes that we noted at this intersection um, during snowy conditions where somebody going southbound in this direction, as you can see in the bottom photo, slid off the road to the outside, to the right side of the photo, into the gravel lot that's on that side of the roadway. Um, maybe they weren't attentive, or maybe it was just snowy and, and uh, slippery. But the fact that the road is banked in that direction does not help them. Even worse was an accident coming northbound, you know, at the uh, at the viewpoint of this photo. Uh, a person crossed over the double yellow center line and was a head-on collision. Um, fortunately, there was no serious injuries, but that's a very serious accident, as you can imagine. Again, maybe that was a factor that the roadway was banked in the wrong direction. Excuse me, there's actually a slide before that that jumped over. So yeah, this is what Adina is, is mentioning. So this, this typically on the top photo, the, this edge right here should typically, in a geometry like this, this should be higher than the other edge of the roadway. 
um, again, just to assist vehicles in making that. Well, while we're on that uh, slide, can I sure. just ask why that uh, incorrect railroad crossing sign is allowed to stay up? That sign is just totally wrong. Bob. Yeah, that was one of the things we even noted in the report too. I can I can talk to the chief and see what we can do to replace that. Yeah, there's that that sign does not represent the geometry. No. This is on Adams Street approaching West Mill, and again, if you give the driver an incorrect impression, yeah. And another thing, there's no stop sign, I believe, either at the end of this road. It's a T intersection, should be a stop sign there as well. So we had a couple of concepts here um, to think about. The first concept uh, makes the changes to the signage, as, as you just noted, so that it's the correct geometry, adds a stop sign. Um, we would pave over that gravel island and tighten up some of the radii here so that it's not high speed turns. The, the railroad, advanced railroad pavement markings are actually way too far in advance. Like you can see the existing pavement marking is, is way over here on the other side of the curve. It should be closer to the actual crossing. And the same thing on the south side of this road as well. But the major um, change in this concept is to change the super elevation, as I mentioned, and to, to physically uh, warp the roadway in the correct direction. So that can be done by adding a little more asphalt to that outside lane. Uh, you may have to actually cut some of that asphalt and add some gravel to, to beef that up. But that would, that would greatly help in, uh, again, people negotiating this turn here. Um, to go one step further, this is a quick yeah, sure. question on that build up. The, the way people use that gravel, there's, there's sometimes just people driving that for whatever reason want to pull over there. Other times, I'm certainly the real companies use that. I've seen truck stuff there as this well. This lot right here. Yep. The outside of the, yeah, the out, yep. outside of the curve. Is this a buildup that would make it hard, impossible, or dangerous for people to continue to use it that way? No, because I think what we're talking about is just like maybe, again, in this scenario here, I've got a different concept after this, but what I'm talking about here is maybe a few inches. Okay. It's all so it's table. horrible lift that you, and then a regular you, car could get down. Yeah, and you out. would you would extend, uh, you would have probably gravel base extending beyond the asphalt to make a smooth transition so that if somebody did leave the road, they wouldn't have a yeah. dramatic drop off, right? You don't want that. Right. And our evaluation of the assessor's maps indicates that this gravel lot is, um, we think is town owned land, is part of the, the roadway layout. So that's interesting as well. And that led us to the next concept, which would, improve on this uh, this concept as well, because right now we're using the existing roadway geometry. We haven't changed this corner, which is again, very tight and tough to see around. And to improve that would be actually to shift the roadway entirely. Um, on the north side, we would recommend shifting West Mill Street about 25 feet into that wooded area and into the gravel lot. This is again, uh, a more costly alternative, but a more safer alternative and is within the town layout, we believe. So this, what this is doing is it's not only addressing the super elevation, as I mentioned earlier, but it's also flattening out this curve. So as you approach from specifically the south, you would be able to see traffic on the other side. You would flatten out this hill and be able to see cars approaching. And if you're stopped at, at Adams, you would definitely be able to see cars approaching <clears throat> from the south or from the north, along with all the pavement markings and signage that we recommend. Again, a more costly improvement, but maybe well worth the thought. Do you have a best mark on that? I mean, 
the one thing is you, the, the crash numbers are really low. The crash numbers are low at, at, at all these locations, um, but again, um, I always like to tell people, you know, we don't want to wait till a tragedy occurs, right? One one crash may be too many if it's somebody in your family or somebody, you know. You no, know, I get that. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. You have a ballpark well, of the cost. No, I don't have a ballpark. We weren't asked to look at the costs. Uh, we could work up something real quick. And the, the other issue with this alternative is it probably would affect the culvert here. We'd probably have to install a new culvert across this stream. Um, which, which, and I haven't looked at the culvert to say whether it's in bad condition or not. Um, it, uh, it, it may, it would definitely require environmental permits through the Conservation Commission, but it may be a, a, an advantage to uh, improve that stream crossing with a new culvert from an environmental standpoint. Um, and again, I, the traffic and safety issues are definitely an improvement. So, and just something to consider. Is, is there some way to uh, reduce the slope of Adam Street? Because it's pretty steep coming down. Yeah, it, it depends on the utilities underneath because we have five feet of cover with it's water sewer. If you cut that profile down, now you have to drop that line down even further. So that's, that's the difficulty with, with having to drop it. One of the things that would, in, instead of dropping the, the mold, uh, you, you may be able to, and again, this scenario raise that intersection up. So instead of worrying about utilities underneath, you, you built up this intersection a little bit higher, and I'm only talking like maybe one or two feet, you're adding cover to the utilities. So you're not worried, what Mo was suggesting, if you want to cut into the road, you have to worry about your five foot of covered water, or if there's electric or anything else, gas in there, you're reducing the cover to those pipes. But if you build up the intersection, you're not worried about the cover. And you may be, um, again, helping out the sight lines and flattening out that vertical curve. That is really the main issue. So this is uh, one of uh, two spots where uh, in the past months when I was coming home, it was downtown. I, it had just started uh, raining and it was, it was getting colder, and I slipped because it was icing up. And so my car actually went into a four-wheel skid to the left as I was heading north. North. Yep. And um, and then I got up to Harding on the bad corner of Harding of my hospital, and I slid there too. And so then I that's when I texted you and said you might want to think about some salt. I don't know. We get them out there. <laughs> <laughs> you tires. <laughs> well, I think the reason that you don't have more uh, uh, crash reports there is that because of the town-owned gravel, all the people that go off just go right, off. Right, and there's no reported know. crashes, right. I, I pushed a car out of the snow there once one winter years yeah. ago. Uh, it, it just went off the road. But yeah, there's nothing to hit. On that point, I'm just curious, because I use this road a lot too, and, and especially when you're headed south, you come around the corner of your house, it's blind corn. Yeah. So you come around, and it's like, it really is a surprise. I wonder if anybody's coming, you don't know until you're already around the corner. So the things you're suggesting are, are right spot on. Do you, because of the root, I don't know, I think of it as a reverse curve, that, that whatever it is. It's super elevation. Yeah, yeah. super elevation. Uh, and because of that blind spot, at least speaking as one driver, it has the effect of causing me to really stick with the speed limit because I, I understand coming around that corner and anything above that mm -hmm. is it's a crapshoot and I don't want to take the chance. Uh, if it was a, had better visibility and it had a little bit of a bank in the right direction, 
the tendency wouldn't be to approach that curve as cautiously. Now, somebody that doesn't build curve, they're going to get it the wrong way. That's what I was going to say. But uh, what I'm wondering about, do you ever evaluate what happens when you make a curve or you make a road improvement that makes it more suitable for the car? Do you ever evaluate, evaluate the impact that that has on driver behavior? The reason I ask is because I know the people that live on that street have had the, uh, the, the speed, you have that speed monitor, and that was there for some extended period of time because people were going faster than 30 mile an hour. And I'm, I'm finding myself saying, well, some of these roads that are kind of have screwy configurations in a weird way cause people, at least that understand the configuration, to be more careful about what they do than they might otherwise do. Is there any way of evaluating, you know, do we create basically a more daring group of drivers as they know that the curves improve? For, for what you just suggested, it's the it's the person that's not familiar with yes. this location. I wouldn't recommend that in this location. But we we do utilize that strategy a little bit. Like there may be instances that you've seen these all over where you put in raised intersections or speed humps mm -hmm. or things like that. Mm -hmm. So there are geometric yeah. Yeah. tools that you can use to slow traffic down. We use those all the time. Yeah. I would I would not maintain yeah. this just for speed reduction right. because it's right. it's yeah. in my opinion an unsafe condition. Well, I kind of, I kind of get it. In all yeah. cases, even if some people will drive it faster that know about it, having the people that don't know about it not get put into a bad spot. So the next couple of intersections, Harding and West and Harding and North and the South Street intersection, I'll let Adina go through these. All right, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, so these next two intersections, uh, we're going to discuss them to an extent together. And that's because they are directly adjacent to each other, only about 300 feet apart. Uh, so I'll be talking about the features of the individual intersections separately, but the recommendations do tie in with each other at the two intersections. Now, both of these intersections, they are um, both three-leg intersections. Uh, on the east side, North Street intersects with Harding Street to form a complex intersection that's formed by a triangular island that creates three separate nodes. Okay, so yeah, the island uh, creates three separate nodes, each of which is essentially its own mini intersection where conflicting traffic crosses paths. And on the west side, we have this Y intersection where West Street intersects with Harding Street. Um, okay, go ahead. Uh, so let's start in on the intersection to the east of Harding and North Street. So the um, the important consequence of having the three nodes is that it creates many additional conflict points compared to a standard T intersection. And it also uh, creates some multi-stage turning movements. So in particular, the triangular island, it forms two separate channels at the end of Harding Street that are both two-way channels for movements in and out of Harding Street. At the intersection, the primary free movements are between Harding Street and the south leg of North Street which are linked by a sharp curve going through the southern channel. Uh, and the, uh, the northbound movement, which curves to the right, um, I'm having a lot of trouble controlling the mouse here, so this will be it. Um, the northbound, northbound free movement curving to the right also is a free movement. The southbound North Street approach is stop control. So putting all this together, this is a really unconventional configuration for the free and stop control movements at the intersection. And drivers unfamiliar with the area could be very confused by all of this. 
Now, during our field visit, we took a small sample of turning movement counts to determine what the heaviest movements are in each of the two periods. In the morning, we found that the heaviest movement is the eastbound left turn, which accounted for 43% of all of the vehicles approaching the intersection. The next heaviest movement was the northbound through, and then the, uh, the northbound left turn following that. Now the pattern is reversed in the evening, where the heaviest movement is the southbound right, followed by the southbound through movement. Now, keeping those um, prevailing traffic movements in mind, uh, we can take a closer look at one of the multi-stage turning movements. Uh, so at the western node, the eastbound left turning vehicles, they have to yield to northbound northbound left turning uh, traffic as they enter the northern channel. Uh, if an eastbound vehicle stops um, at that node to await a gap in closing traffic, a queue often forms behind it, which can back up to the intersection at West Street to the west. And then eastbound left turning vehicles, they operate as though they're under stop control at the end of the channel, but it is missing both the stop sign and the stop line at that, at that node. The channel also has limited storage capacity. About four vehicles at most, um, it can fit in there, which is another reason why vehicles end up queuing on Harding Street eastbound. And it may block the lane for northbound left turning vehicles as well. Then for those eastbound vehicles to finally turn left, they have to cross the southbound lane of Broad Street, which is a free movement at that node. But if there are more than two through vehicles queued up at the southbound stop line, like you see in the picture, the queue can block the eastbound left turn vehicles in the channel unless they have an illegal gap in the queue. And that blockage occurs most often in the evening peak hour when that southbound um, traffic is the heaviest. And based on crash information, southbound drivers at the southern node may have difficulty gauging whether approaching northbound vehicles are making the through movement or turning left until the last moment, which makes it difficult for those drivers to determine if they have an appropriate gap to proceed into traffic. Uh, so let's take a closer look at the crash data at this intersection on the next slide. Okay, great. So um, the picture in the upper right, um, it's just to orient where, where we're looking. It's as though uh, we're standing on the island looking west towards the intersection at West Street. In fact, we can see the vehicles queued at the stop line on West Street off in the distance. Uh, and we're also looking at the west node of this intersection where the southbound right vehicles have to yield to the northbound left turning vehicles. Uh, and in the lower left, we're standing on the island looking towards the stop sign for this uh, southbound approach. Uh, and so we see the uh, where the northbound left turning vehicle would be coming from the distance toward us and then across the path um, and uh, there, there are also the eastbound right turning vehicles that cross the path at that point. So in our safety analysis we found that there were 21 reported crashes over the five-year period that we evaluated it which is an average of 4.2 crashes per year. Um, we have a quick question here. Well, you know where I got from yes. this one. What year was the road stripes repainted? Well, they repainted every year, but the, you're talking about. I'm talking about when was the curve on Harding Street? Probably 2017, I think, 2018. Right. 
So I will point out that the crash incidents coincided with the change in the striping of the road. So that when people are headed northbound on north, when they approach that fork, it used to be the curve went to the left as a continuation because most of the traffic coming out of the center of town that's local was going up Harding Street. So when you approach that island, the strike went to the left. The last time that we had the roads repainted, the way they repainted it was they created a strike that goes to the right. So what happens is people going up northbound down north, they get to that strike, and basically they, they either do what I do, which is about 12 feet before the end of the strike, I cross it. Because I want the people at the stop sign to have absolutely no doubt but that I'm going up Harding Street. But people who pay more attention to the strike than I have learned to, they first do a head fake toward north because they try to stay to the right of the yellow stripe and then make a left turn onto Harding. So the people at the stop sign see someone coming, seeing them veering to the right, go, I'm good to go. And then the people, but no, I'm going to Harding Street. So I suspect that some of the statistics you're looking at are not a function of, I, I'm not to, questioning the overall free channel of confusion. But a lot of those statistics have to do with the fact that that strike has never been put back the way it used to be, where people could easily continue on a party strike. Yeah, we actually have it, have it broken out by year in the report, so I can actually check to see right. um, whether angle crashes decreased, increased over time. Um, they increased over time. Starting in 2017, they went up to five a year. That's my point. Yeah, and in fact, no, 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 to make it clear you shouldn't do that. I, I, it's, a, it's a safety issue. It's the one, one place I use the turn signal and parking and hospital when I'm going right. But that one I have learned not to put my turn signal on because people pull out in front of me all the time when I tell them what I'm planning to do. Keep on the turn off. Keep on the turn off. It's always good driving. Haven't been in a crash there yet. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm surprisingly the, uh, the the greatest number of crashes there are these angle crashes, where specifically eight of the 17 angle crashes were between the southbound three vehicles and northbound left turn vehicles. The, the biggest danger is of people blowing through the stop sign because the, the, the road looks like there should not be a stop, stop sign there. Yeah. And so that you see people pull through that stop sign on a regular basis, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so jumping over to the other intersection of Harding Street at West Street. Harding Street curves through the intersection and forms the east leg and the northwest leg. The free movements of the intersection are between the two legs of Harding Street, and West Street has a stop-controlled approach. As far as the, uh, the prevailing traffic, in the morning peak period, 72% of all vehicles approaching the intersection are eastbound vehicles on West Street, continuing on what is essentially a through movement through the intersection to eastbound Harding Street. And the, the Harding Street southeastbound approach accounts for just 13% of all the approaching traffic in the morning. In the evening, the reverse pattern, where 51% of all traffic 
approaching is making the westbound left from Harding Street onto West Street. And the Harding Street southeastbound approach is 23% of all the traffic. Now we, we have to record zero vehicles making the sharp turns between West Street um, and the northwest way of Harding Street um, in either direction. But our sample period was very short, and that doesn't mean that no vehicles ever do that. We just didn't capture it in our data. So based on our observations, the heaviest traffic movements in both peak hours, the ones subject to the stop control and field control, that is for the um, westbound left onto Western, where westbound Harvey Street vehicles have to yield to eastbound Harvey Street vehicles crossing their paths. So we're going to make another comment. And I should say, I live north. I live on Harding Street, so I have an interest in this as well. Which I hate to wonder where you all live. Well, there's people listening should know like, where my comments come from. I will make an observation. And I'm not disagreeing, especially with West Street. It's a very awkward intersection, so I'm, not, I'm actually not totally fighting the concept. But I will make an observation that those statistics are reflecting commuter traffic through Medfield along North Street. They're not reflecting prime Medfield resident traffic, which is going from north of, of where this is down into town. So I'll make that as an observation because statistically there may be more people, more commuters passing through town. The kind of direction you're going with this is we want to optimize the convenience for commuters going through town from North Street to West Street which if anything will probably attract more of them to want to do it because it will be so expedited, at, to the detriment of the people who live here who are actually moving from north to south. So I, I do actually, and I have an interest, so I put that on the table because I'm one of those people that does that. Uh, so I, when we look at the statistics, we ought to also think about it that way, particularly with an imminent development up at the state hospital where suddenly the population north of town is likely to so I, I, I hear what you're saying about commuter traffic and I agree with you I think most of the most of the traffic is probably commuter but I would say you know the, the recommendations that we're going to show you and, and what we're sort of telling you tonight is that uh, you know none of this is to improve the access or the uh, access for commuters or the um, the speed at which people navigate through the intersections we're really looking at if anything I'm promoting slowing traffic down because slower traffic is safer traffic. I want people to have, you know, understand where I have to stop, where people are coming from. Uh, you know, the previous intersection, we were talking about all those nodes, and every node is a place where somebody can get into a crash. And so to the extent that you can take that, that three-legged triangular item, you know, intersection, and remove all of those conflicts and reduce them, you make yeah. it safer. Yeah. So, and... And it may slow traffic down in those commuters, as we'll see in a minute. But um, again, we're not looking to make it easier for commuters, for sure. Okay. Uh, so the, as you see, the angle between the northwest lane of Harding Street and West Street is uh, very sharp. And that causes the drivers on the West Street approach to crane their necks far to the left uh, to, put, to be able to see the oncoming vehicle. A lot of those vehicles even creep beyond the stop line due to the um, insufficient sight distance there. And that really does increase the potential for rear end crashes. If, if a front, the front vehicle creeps out and the following vehicle thinks that vehicle is departing the intersection, they'll start craning their neck and they're not looking and end up with a rear end crash there. 
There's also a horizontal curve that's upstream from here um, to, the, to the left of the picture on West, on West Street. Street. Uh, so vehicles approaching on West Street are coming around this curve to the right and uh, might not be able to see if there are vehicles queued at that stop line, as there often are. Uh, those, those vehicles might end up being right in front of them with, with no warning um, and very little sight distance around that corner. There's also uh, some very steep grades here. The West Street approach uh, has a steep downgrade, and so vehicles might have difficulty stopping on that approach. <coughs> but conversely, on Harding Street, there's a steep upgrade. Um, let's go to the next slide here. There's a picture that um, you can see the difference in the grades between those two legs. Um, in the upper right picture, uh, we are looking west. Um, on the left is the, the West Street approach. And yeah, there's a, there's a huge grade difference between those two roadways. And you, you can even see the vehicle at the stop line right there uh, has angled, the, the, the vehicle's angled a little bit to the left. Drivers tended to do that a lot in our observations uh, to assist them in seeing around that corner. So uh, at this intersection, there were seven crashes, uh, just one injury crash in the five-year period. Four of them were rear-end crashes, and all four of them were on that West Street approach between the two eastbound vehicles. So I think of both of these uh, intersections as sort of the cow paths that became paved. Um, <laughs> and um, I have the same uh, prejudice that Gus does, because I live up Harding and you're adding a stop sign to me getting to town. When I had thought about redoing this, because this has always been an intersection that's been needing to be redone, um, but I assumed that Harding would have to be you know, the priority right away, and that West Street would end up with a stop sign, and that it would be curved down, coming out, yeah. and, and, and curved to the left and made it a stop sign at, at Harding. Was, was that examined at all? That that could be done. It's a little more tricky because of the difference in grades, as Adina was saying. You know, Hardy Street is much lower than West Street because West Street's coming down from high. So, and I'm not sure who owns that property. So, if you did that, you may have to take somebody's property there to make that to tee off West Street onto Hardy Street. Oh, that's Yeah. So it's a little it's a little tricky, but again, you know, we're sort of as traffic engineers, we look at where the majority of the traffic is. And you know, we want to we want to make the traffic move in that direction, um, not to not to increase the speeds and, and make it efficient for them. But but that's really where most people are traveling. That's like you said, it started out as Cal Pass, and now this is just this is the reality. So, so I just mentioned uh, that uh, Ken Feeney years ago offered to redo the intersection at uh, Harding and North and turn it into a T intersection. You're proposing more or less like what you're proposing, uh, and this selectman got voted down two to one by my colleagues to not do that at that time. So, <laughs> all right, well, um, so that brings us to the concepts that we are proposing. We did develop two different concepts for this pair of intersections. And the first concept converts, as you said, the intersection at North Street into a more conventional T intersection. So uh, we think that making North Street the main roadway with uh, the free movements, both northbound and southbound, helps to simplify the geometry. And although the eastbound left is a major movement, especially in the morning, 
partly that movement has to navigate two turns across conflicting traffic that has the right of way. And this concept reduces it to at least just one single turning movement. So in this concept, we do remove the, the triangular island, removes the three nodes. Uh, we tee up Harvey Street for, for better sight lines and just better operations overall. We've added a channelized eastbound right turning lane. And uh, like I mentioned, we've, we've changed the traffic control. So North Street has the free movements, both north and south. And Harding Street eastbound left has stop control. Eastbound right has yield control. Okay, uh, next. So under the same concept now at West Street, we're proposing to change the traffic control so that eastbound West Street West Street and westbound Harding Street have the free movements. And uh, then the, the southeastbound Harding Street approach would be stopped control. So there are a bunch of uh, signing and pavement marking improvements that go along with this, uh, including tightening up the corner uh, between the two ends of Harding Street that would help um, reduce the speed of, of vehicles making that turn. Um, and uh, let's see. So the, then the, the angle to the approach on West Street also, we, we would change the angle so that we uh, hit the center line so that it's basically just a straight turn. Okay, excellent. So our second concept converts the intersection at North Street into a single lane modern roundabout complete with truck aprons, glitter islands, real lines, etc. We, we think that this um, concept is a good concept um, because roundabouts do have lots of advantages, um, such as it does slow down all the traffic, and slow traffic, as Steve mentioned, is safe traffic. It also allows for all traffic to keep on moving, so there's less queuing involved. And uh, there are just, in general, fewer conflict points at a roundabout than, uh, than any other kind of intersection. So um, now we do recommend that if if the town village interested in going forward with a roundabout at this location, that new traffic counts be, uh, be taken here. Uh, the, the count that we took was very informal. Uh, you would need formal traffic counts and to do an actual operational analysis to confirm that the operations would work for the roundabout. Next slide. Just, uh, just on that point, for having pushed back on interfering with Harding Street, which I'm with Pete, I'm not. Not particularly, I don't. You're taking Harding Street, turning it from a through street into town to a side street that has a stop sign to get onto the through street that doesn't go into town but cuts through town. So, my, my point wasn't speeding up cars, my point was speeding up commuters because they don't have any stops, they just have to zip through, which will encourage more commuter traffic up there. However, to my, my reaction to the roundabout, I thought that was an interesting thing. It would, I would think, tend to slow cars at that intersection, which most of the time you kind of slow it. With a confusing intersection, those cars kind of slow down mm -hmm. and try to figure it out. But the one consideration I have without having done those traffic counts is that there are times in the morning and there are times at night when there's heavy, relatively heavy traffic through there because of commuting, and then there are other times when there's nothing at all. So from my perspective, the nice thing about a roundabout is it never binds you to some form of you know, traffic signaling that stops you even when you don't need to be. If there's no traffic, it's easy to get around it. 
when there is a lot of traffic, everybody gets around it and you figure it out and the flow responds to where, you know, where it's coming in from. So as a concept, that to me didn't sound like it was necessarily a bad issue, bad answer for the North Street, Harding Street fork, if you will. Yeah, we, um, we didn't do any formal uh, traffic signal warrant analysis for that intersection, mm -hmm. but our, our gut feeling is that it would probably meet traffic signal warrants, and uh, in the future, the town may want to consider a signalized intersection there. But again, that's another advantage of the roundabout in that location. You don't have the maintenance costs of a traffic signal. The, the upfront installation cost of the signal is going to be huge compared to just a roundabout, which is just pavement. And again, ongoing electricity costs. And it, again, a roundabout is always working. You know, if there's a power outage or something like that, you know, you don't have an uncontrolled signalized intersection. You have the roundabout still there. So. A lot of advantages around about, and that leads me into this segue. We, we, a lot of people are confused when I say roundabout. They think about the old style rotaries that we have here in Massachusetts, like the Sagamore Bridge. You know, these huge, high speed, very dangerous, hard to negotiate, and they're not like that at all. So this is this is a location in, in uh, albeit it's a much more urban setting in uh, Jamaica Plain in Boston. This is Hyde Square, and um, if I just. This is a quick little video to show you, and it's a little laggy. I apologize. Um, but again, it's just showing you how the traffic operates. And again, it's a little little jittery, but there's a lot of traffic going through here. It's all moving. It's operating very slowly. The speeds here are probably 15 to 20 miles an hour, which is really what you'd like to see around about. Right? It's so slow that, as you're going to see in a minute, bicyclists feel comfortable riding right through the roundabout in traffic, which is one of the options that they have. Um, it's, it's great for pedestrians to walk across here. And again, it eliminates the conflict points. If you're, if you're approaching this roundabout, all you have to worry about is looking to your left, to the traffic approaching that's in the roundabout. You don't have to worry about somebody coming from the right or straight ahead or any of that. You just have to make sure, again, that if somebody's crossing that crosswalk, first you look at the crosswalk, then you look at the traffic, and, and you're into the roundabout avenue. Again, traffic, the whole idea is the traffic is continually moving under a yield condition. And Steve did not stage that bicyclist and the pedestrian at the same time. So. Right, it probably has a couple of years. Yeah. I suspect most people are familiar with the better. Even less complex than that. All right. Are, are the costs of the roundabout on the uh, TRT intersection the same as um, the roundabout would probably be a little bit more because, again, the T intersection without a signal is is probably easier for most guys to actually do on their own, right? Just eliminating that island, paving it, use pavement striking and stuff like that. The roundabout is more, a lot more geometry, a lot more pavement to install, um, so it's probably a little more costly. Thank you. All right, so on to the fifth intersection. Intersection at South High Streets, uh, backing up through the unsignalized intersection. 
And we did have formal turning movie counts taken uh, back in November of 2020, uh, 11 hours from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., which covered both periods of the day. Uh, and we used that data to evaluate the traffic signal warrants. Now, the traffic signal warrants are a set of nine warrants um, set by federal guidelines in the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, or MUTCD, perhaps you probably call And the two relevant warrants for this intersection are the eight-hour vehicular volume warrant and the four-hour vehicular volume warrant. So those are the two that we evaluated. Now, I'll mention that the traffic counts that we took, yes, they were during the pandemic, and we do not expect that uh, the, the counts that we take during the pandemic are representative of what, uh, what we might expect in the future, especially as early in the pandemic as that was. We did make some adjustments to the counts based on a comparison of data from an automated traffic reporter count station to the north of here along Spring Street from data that was taken pre-pandemic in 2019 compared to data that we took the same day we took the, um, the, the data at this intersection during the pandemic. And by making that comparison, we were able to adjust the volumes uh, that we counted at this intersection as though to uh, approximate the hourly traffic volumes that we would expect at this intersection uh, without the and so we, uh, we evaluated these two warrants and found that the signal, or sorry, the intersection meets both of these signal warrants. Now we did also evaluate uh, just uh, to see if it would meet the warrants without any adjustment for the pandemic, just the counts that we took that day, and it meets the warrants even then. And so, uh, as, as traffic is expected to grow in the future, if an intersection meets signal warrants under present-day conditions, it will most certainly meet those warrants under projected future conditions. Uh, it's, it's more difficult to meet the warrants with the lower present-day volumes, so using these volumes presents the more conservative analysis. So we're confident that a signal is warranted here. Well, we met them in 2016, too. We did the same study in 2016. So uh, in the uh, upper right, we're looking at the, uh, the, the westbound approach, which is self-controlled, has um, two separate uh, lanes for the left-turning, left right-turning traffic. Uh, in, the, in the bottom picture, you can see the vehicles approaching from the other intersection from the south, uh, which uh, it's hard to see in the picture, but that's where the signalized intersection is. So uh, there were six crashes at at this intersection. Um, none of them were injury crashes. And uh, it's worth highlighting that the, the two angle crashes, they were uh, both between westbound left turning vehicles and northbound through vehicles. And those are certainly uh, crashes that would be corrected by installing a traffic signal. Uh, okay, so our recommendations for this this uh, intersection. First, worth mentioning that satisfying one or more of the warrants does not necessarily require the installation of a traffic signal at an intersection. That said, however, we do recommend installing a traffic signal at this intersection. Further, we recommend that this new traffic signal be coordinated with the traffic signal 
to the south. And also before um, before the signal will be installed, a full capacity analysis should be done to determine the signal phasing and timing and whether any additional approach lanes might be needed. And also yeah, can in the tap. It's probably not a question, but when you talk about coordinating two signals, and I'm a little sensitive. We've, we've tried to coordinate our signals through the center of town on 109, and I don't know how to do it, but I'm, I, I'm appreciative that it's apparently not an easy thing to figure out. Uh, try to figure it all out. You, you have two lights, you're trying to coordinate them, and I'm sitting there saying, well, either you coordinate them for the southbound traffic, or you coordinate them for the northbound traffic, but I have a hard time picturing how you can coordinate them for both north and southbound traffic, unless maybe the light we're talking about here would be a, a short duration light somehow or another where the other one is a longer duration green light on 27. So yep. it's probably a dumb question, but how do you coordinate two lights to be able to optimize both north and south? That is the holy grail of traffic signal coordination, <laughs> to get it to work <laughs> in both directions. And only under special circumstances where the spacing of two intersections um, and the the prevailing speed of vehicles between them does it actually work to, to make that happen. So uh, whichever the, the prevailing direction of traffic is in whichever peak period, that's the one that you would coordinate between two intersections like this. So you have a view on, so we looked at this in 2016, um, we decided not to do it. Um, I think looking back at that report, we had at least three more Yeah, um, I can address that. One of the issues was it was not even close to our most dangerous intersection which is the west of 27 or so separate um, thing. The other issue that was raised from a cost standpoint, we raised it with respect to the turning lanes. I remember that at least the view at the time from the engineers was that you actually would have to create another lane, which would require moving the sidewalk and moving it into the there's a ditch there. Do you have a view on that? That was the that was the big cost is that Take, look at the expense. We have to take some of the land, the sidewalk, and move it. Well, to the we have, We don't. The town is not own land, so yep. move the sidewalk. You actually have to take some. If you want to keep the sidewalk, you have to take some of the land that's now in the ditch. Do you have a view on that? Turning lane. That was what turned it from. I think the original expectation was that it was a relatively straightforward addition of a light, and then as we got deeper into it, I think the addition of the priority issue we had is part of the that was another piece of it, was that that lane would be necessary, and then where it was, I don't know if you have a view on it as well, or if you have a sense I, of, is that I, is that wrong, is that a possibility? It, it's a possibility, I would add that, you know, again, we're, we're coming out of this, this pandemic that really nobody's seen ever, and there's all these new normals. One of the things that we're finding as we do counts all over the state is that the peaks are not the peaks anymore. So many people are staying home that there's more, there's more consistency through the day um, there's more traffic in midday than there used to be, and the peaks are actually a little bit less than they were. Now, are they going to return to the, the good old days? Are we ever going to see that go back? I don't know because, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that think, you know, we're never going back. People are working from home, and uh, are we going to get the commuting patterns that we used to have? So to answer your question is if, if we do, again, and we would recommend at all these locations doing more comprehensive traffic counts other than the, just the little things that we did um, to document the actual traffic because um, it's been a whole other year now. Um, 
is that the traffic counts and the analysis may prove that you don't need a turning lane because maybe the traffic, um, you know, is, is gone down a little bit or it's spread out over the day. So that is quite possibly something that can happen. Is that what we cover in the volume question as opposed to? I, I think so. Yeah. Was this a northbound right turn lane? Yeah, this was a right turn lane on 27 turns right on the south street. Yeah. Um, the only reason that that would have been in there, I would, I would think, is uh, for volume reasons. Uh, although, I mean, if, if there are, if, there, if that is a uh, large volume movement, um, you might want to put it in just to, uh, so that the, that that movement doesn't have to stop at the red light. Maybe they would have a channelized lane or, or something to help. I mean, that's the morning commuting path. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's uh, I assume it was volume. But if the volume were lower, you could get away with that. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. <clears throat> so that actually wraps up my comments on that. And that, yeah, that, that ends our presentation. We thank you very much for your time. So my question uh, at uh, 27 and South Street is, how about a roundabout there, or two roundabouts? Roundabouts are very good. I'm not, I think we're restricted with the room for a roundabout, I, I, unless you take it, you know, eminent domain um, takings, because I think we're tight with, um, to get that circumference of that. Usually it's like a hundred foot diameter, outside diameter is really what you're looking for um, for a roundabout. So is that feasible on uh, Route 27 or not? The, you know, to the, 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 the high street, South Street intersection looks like there's a lot of pavement there. It, it may be. Again, I don't know where the, the street layout lines are. I don't think we looked at the assessor's maps of this. Um, the other the other intersection that we recommended, the signal that signalized intersection, looked a little tighter. So I don't know that uh, roundabout would work there, but, but well, maybe. Yeah. Well, that's a state route, right? Uh, do we have? Do we actually have the we ability have, to change? We have. A, it's a state numbered route, but it's the town only maintains. So we have a jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. Billy. Yeah. So I have. To this intersection, go to the one on north west. Uh, you need to use the microphone. Yeah, oh. the, okay. yeah, right. yeah. The boom yeah. 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 The concern of, of putting a stop sign on Harding southbound. Um, if you try to go there in the morning, and you know, West Street wouldn't have a stop sign, it would be impossible really to get enter that traffic at all from there. And I can tell you that if I were to go to town in the morning, I would cut through School Street or Hickory or you know, Blacksmith and just go north. And you know, that puts a lot of pressure on those residential streets then uh, where people really wouldn't go down Harding anymore. Uh, the second question I have about, so when you go up north, there's a, a really beautiful sidewalk uh, offset from the street. And if you want to somehow bike or walk from there to uh, Hospital Hill, right now it's really awkward to go across that island and then walk on the side of Harding. Um, what would be your uh, suggestion of having a uh, zebra crossing off on that roundabout, and where do you go from there, uh, parting? 
question. I think it's difficult because there's no there's no sidewalk unless I'm mistaken on Harding and West. So it's the question is like once you get across the intersection, then where do you do? Well, yeah, I mean, people do walk there all the time, both yeah. ways on Harding. So, but how do you get across that roundabout stop sign area safely? It already is off, awkward, right? And dangerous, you yeah. know. And if you if you put in all that and money to make this a, a better place, you know, I think you should think about the kids that cycle to school, the people who walk there, and joggers all all times of day. There are people, and especially we know that there's a lot of. Um, Bikers from outside uh, the town that, that use that route, and uh, you know it's it's very frequently used by non-motorized vehicles. You could have a, um, a sidewalk that would go down White and School and come out further up on Harding near uh, West Mill. Right, but uh, my concern is you know that roundabout that, that coming up north on that beautiful sidewalk, all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're standing. In a traffic that has no space for pedestrians. Right, right. But that beautiful sidewalk takes you up to Winter Street. Right. And, and so you just need a, another half block to get to school. Oh, I see what you say. White, and then you can get over to Harding with pretty safely. Yeah, you can, just to answer your question, you can. Roundabouts do not preclude bicyclists or pedestrians. They're actually better for bicyclists and pedestrians. Like the video I showed you, there's plenty of people crossing there because the traffic is slower. And again, as traffic approaches a roundabout, the crosswalk is the first thing they see. So the pedestrians are the first thing as a driver I'm worried about. I see somebody at a crosswalk, you know, that's what I'm focused on. I'm not focused on cars yet because I gotta get across the crosswalk. That's the first thing. Once I get across that, I get into the roundabout. Yeah, but again, I'm, I'm still going very slow, which is why the bicyclists are, A, they could, they could ride in the roundabout and circumnavigate that way, or they can get off their bike and, and walk across like yeah, I just wanted to make sure there are actual pedestrian crossings on whatever you Yeah, we would certainly do that. The, the video that you showed of the roundabout, the crosswalks wouldn't be to get onto the roundabout. The crosswalks yeah. would be crosswalks Prior on to. the three feeder lines, which is like when I walk up on, when I walk down north toward the center of town, when I get to the north intersection, I wind up walking all the way around the corner where I can both see if anybody's making that left turn of the southbound of Harding, but also see if anybody's coming. And I don't ever get on the island. I actually, I have, I, I take it back, I have occasionally gone to the island, and then I can go out there, but I'm just as likely to just try to cross north to avoid the island if, if you know, there's no traffic. Scope for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ellen. David? Yeah. Um, can, I, can I ask just one question? That, you know, I think Peter said, or maybe Mike, you asked on the very first thing, when would that that first project go into three years? The other projects, timing on the other four? The other projects are within two years to three years. That's what so those projects So all of these would be things we could do within two or three years. Yeah. The, the issue, the, the South Street one we were looking to do this coming year. So, but if we did a signalization down at South Street in 27, that would have to be a separate project from this only because that would have to be, we'd have to find funding for it. It would be a one a mil, a, above a million dollars probably to, to signalize that intersection with pedestrian crossing and everything else. I mean, the prioritization is another question, right? I think right. in some sense, we have the same issue we had with that intersection in 2016, but it's not, 
to some quirky numbers in the 20s. The exact equation is probably more outliers than they calculated. So, but I think the from a capital planning standpoint, it seemed to me if we're going the roundabout route, that's going to have to be something that we're going to have to plan for and work in and figure out plans. It's not a T intersection that may be able to be done with our current I think Bridge Street, Bridge Street, we can incorporate fairly quickly into our Bridge Street reconstruction project. I think West Elms, uh, West Mill Street, depending on which which route you know we decide to take, the you know the first option was a quicker and you know, easier solution that we could incorporate in. If we did the second one, it would have to be a separate funding function for that, um, and then the South Street and depending on what we would do on the West Mill, I mean, uh, the West Street and Hardy Street area. Yeah, so I think just from looking ahead, um, the biggest change would be with respect to what you want for Hardy and West, right? So I think if you're going to go down that route, you've got to get a bit more input from the people who live around the first place, um, people generally. Um, but secondly, it's going to be a project if you go to the intersection, that can be built with our existing capital structures, and it's going to be a roundabout. We're going to have to plan that in, you know, for the longer term. We're going to have to bring $30 million to signalize 27 South Street. But that's another thing that's not, there's not money currently existing in our capital plan right. money for that. So if we're going to do something that significant, I would be skeptical of that 2016 out of the data set we have been signaling. And especially with Richard about this at the time, you know, because in terms of the list of things to do, uh, I would do a lot of stuff before I did that. Um, but, uh, but I think from a finance standpoint, we'll have to be able to have to make a decision about what we're going to do uh, in the heart of the West because that's a bigger project. That's, I can't just assume we're going to talk about paying with North Street. It's a similar thing. It's probably something that's blocking. I think it's realistically, it's not something we're just going to find money in the existing structures, but it sounds like Bridge Street and the T option. What I'm shooting from the hip for me, you may have different views, Peter. Like on the West Mill, I totally unqualified, just off the top of my head, reaction to what you just presented is I would probably go with the cheaper option, not because the other option is not better, but because it doesn't seem like there's accident experience to suggest it's a really dangerous intersection. And I don't think the traffic that's there is so burdensome that we would want to, you know, that the extra cost would necessarily be called for just because it's it's kind of an industrial area already. We, we get the super elevation. Yeah, get, I think it would be good to improve the intersection without a dip, without a doubt. But my quick inclination would be to go with a cheaper solution, yeah. especially if, if it's something that could be done, you know, sooner and more easily. Yeah, reaction to that how would I prioritize the these five? Like the, the five I, well, because of the projects that we have in the queue. Um, so the first one that's going to be coming up would be the West Street, West uh, West Mill Street. Um, we unfortunately missed a boat on the North Street intersection because we had done North Street in the Hardy section that leads to that, whether it's a roundabout or whether it's a T. But to remove the island, we would still be able to reconstruct that. Fairly simple on a T, 
if we decide to do a roundabout, we got to get cost uh, from from Mitch and see where we, where we stand on that. But um, I think Bridge Street is, you know, just a. I mean, I, I drive that every day. You, you drive Harding Street every day, and Bridge Street is. <coughs> luckily, knock on wood, we don't have a lot of accidents there, but there's a lot of confusion uh, every day. Somebody's going the wrong way, or well, we don't know what the wrong wrong way is. <laughs> <laughs> so you so. Well, when you're going eastbound on 109 and you're turning down to Bridge Street, do you yes. use I go the before, first? I go before the island instead, the first of, before the instead of going okay. all the way around and coming around. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cheating, what, but I mean, well, that's what I've been doing, but I, I never know whether it's the right thing. I'm not feeling All the thing I worry about is people coming from Bridge Street onto 109. If they're taking a left hand turn, are they going on the right side of the island? Right, right. That's, that's the question. I have one more question about this, Mo. Uh, I see that the report's dated about a year ago. Yes. How come we are only getting it now? Um, well, to tell you the truth, there was a lot of action going on with a lot of different projects, and it wasn't a priority at the time for us. So we had a lot of time for our projects to incorporate into our pavement management, and that's what it was geared towards. Um, we felt that, you know, give time for these guys to give a presentation, and when we had a proper time to get together. I, you know, I, it's, you know, unfortunately, I would like to have done it earlier, but it's just like 109 and everything else. I'd love to get 109 uh, reconstruction on the tip and get all that squared away, too. It's just so many different. With COVID, we were on split shifts for the last two years. Um, it was just difficult to, to do everything and uh, didn't feel it was a priority at the time. Are you looking for any action from us on this? Or I, I think I just wanted kind of your feedback to see what interest you had with these intersections. If there's anything... Any of those intersections that you say, yeah, go ahead and, and, and incorporate it in, and some that we may have to go back to the drawing board or to discuss a little further to see if there's any action that want, you know, the board or the town wants to take on those intersections. So Bridge Street, I would say do as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, West Mill and Adams, I would do the first of yeah. the two, uh, as, as Gus stated. On, on I think it sounds like, yeah, we have still have more conversation for, for Harding to see, you know, I know between the traffic movements of what it is or what the town, you know, residents, how they move around. Which is always change that strike to see if the accident <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will talk to the chief this year. I think the island is, it just makes it convoluted with the, 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 so many nodes. Like yeah. 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 Um, and so that on that one, I, I, I like the roundabout test myself, but I, I'd love to hear how much the delta is for the increased cost. And, uh, and on Harding and, and uh, West Street, I, you know, my, my personal interest is that to have Harding be the through it. You know, if, if, if the traffic engineers say that it should be the other how do we How do we get public input on that to see what the consensus, I mean, do you want to put it out to the public to see what they would like to see, I mean, and see how safe we can make it if Harding Street is the throughway. I mean, uh, because West Street, when you come down the hill, looking 180 degrees backwards is, is difficult. Um, and you just, like I said, sometimes they turn left to look to see if anybody goes. I, I'm with Pete about yeah. the idea that West Street would curve. To, so it's not like I just live with it. It would be if you actually put the bed right there where I'm coming from, is if you go out west, if you go out uh, West Mill over at, you know how Dover Road cuts down to 109? Yes. It's like this just little 
jack handle thing and it works. So like you, Pete, I understand the problem because every once in a real time I try to come on and make a left turn on the Harding, it's a pain in the neck. So I get that. Uh, and then you see people creeping out, which is exactly what you expect them to do. So my, my first inclination would be what you suggested. Can't you just turn it to where people hit Harding Street at something more like a 90 degree angle? Mm -hmm. If you ask for input, I will guess, I'll speculate, that everybody that uses Harding Street is going to tell you pretty much what I just told you. If you asked people on West Street whether they wanted it to be turned into a more convenient thoroughfare, I'm guessing they would say something similar, that they'd rather not have the increased traffic. The voice you won't hear from are the people who are trying to commute through Metfield who get stopped coming off of North Street and then have this, you know, rather complex decision about how do I make the left onto West Street. And perhaps the answer is no left turn onto West Street between 4 and 7 p.m. So they go up to West Mill and they do it that way. Uh, so there's other there's other ways to get around that. It is a tough turn. If you're the trick is if you're coming up North Street and you have a yield sign and you know that there's traffic coming up on North Street to Harding Street, you you're incentivized to try to gun it to get in front of the cars that you know are going to be coming, but then immediately you have to slow down to make the left and the temptation. And I can say this speaking from experience, coming south on Harding Street is, no, I think I've got it. And they just kind of try to zip in front of the cars that are coming on Harding Street. Um, I, you know, my quick reaction is it would actually be ideal if there was a marked turn lane there and a through lane at that one spot. And whether we have the width to be able to do it or not, I don't know. But. Yeah, you do occasionally see like people in sort of weird distance. Yeah. They yeah. don't think they're going straight. Right. right. And, and it's partly a desperation. <laughs> when there's heavy commuter traffic, you can see it. At the, you can actually see the stop sign. People get impatient. They get impatient. I I never drive out here, but I've seen it on weekends when there's more traffic in both directions. Mm -hmm. You can see people kind of, you know, kind of just slide. So was very close. Clearly, the guy on the west going from part of the western thought it was straight. Mm -hmm. And if there's someone's coming up harder towards also from the other street. What we can do is, um, I can ask Mitch if they could put a uh, cost estimates together for the, the intersections in question and maybe come up with another conceptual of having Harding be the through way to make safety improvements. Um, maybe leave that West, would be my preference. Leave, leave Harding at North, either the roundabout or a T, but create a, a thoroughfare for, uh, for Harding Street. Well, as long as you're taking care of my personal preferences, I'd like a right turn uh, on red at the 109 and uh, South Street. You got it. <laughs> that would be helpful to get because I mean, if it is going to be a more expensive option, then you're going to have to borrow the money. Right. It's better to have it in the queue on North Street. It may also be another borrowing issue. And I do think those two intersections should be viewed in an integrated fashion. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Want to talk paving, though? Sure. Um, so, if we hop into, as far as the winter this year, it's um, it's kind of a, a kind of a recipe for disaster so far because of the temperature fluctuations we've had, the amount of precipitation, the frozen ground, everything uh, adds to tearing up our roadways. 
if you go to these a lot of the neighboring towns, you probably see a lot of potholes that you probably didn't see before, a little bit more in each town. And, and to put our resources out there to continually take care of these issues, um, every time there's a rainstorm, every time there's a snowstorm, and we get these fluctuations, you're going to get those potholes reappearing unless you take good care. One issue I have with 109 um, is that it's very dangerous when our guys are out there. It's, uh, you know, we need multiple police details for them to work out there. Traffic is always terrible. It's not really a good time to work out there. So it's an inconvenience to the, to the community. It's, a, in, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous to our staff. Um, but we feel there's two areas that get a lot of traffic and that are kind of in deplorable conditions. Mostly North Street from Ferry down to Pine Street and then now going from on 109 from Brook Street out to the town line in Dover going east. Um, we feel if we don't do anything this coming year, um, you know, we feel that it's going to be a bigger issue if we have another winter like, like we've had. Um, to keep up with something like that, like I said, it takes a lot of resources, it takes a lot of time and effort where we could be doing other, um, you know, uh, worthwhile projects. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is that there's a couple of options that I'd like to run by you to see what your thoughts are. Um, to refocus our attention to priorities, which would be to us now is, you know, the servicing of, of North Street and the surface on 109. To, to do North Street, um, we would need to put drainage in. We would need to reclaim the whole area. We would need granite curving, concrete sidewalks, remove poles, remove uh, poles, uh, do some traffic calming around uh, Pine Street and the Dale Street um, radiuses. So with that being said, that's, that's a, a very big chunk of money to, to do that. Um, right now, with the cost, we're looking at a little over $3 million, anywhere between 3 and 3.5. So, um, and that's also to repair part of the culvert that's on Ferry Street. What, I'm, what we're suggesting is resurfacing the roadway and for, to give us the 6 to 10 year kind of a cushion to get funding available, whether we go to town meeting, whether we go to, uh, you know, representatives, whether we go to uh, try to find grants for different options on, on this. Uh, we, we can't handle it just with Chapter 90 and Capital. It's just too, too big of a, a chunk. But um, we're looking to grind the road down about an inch and a half, resurface it. It should give us at least a six to ten year window to, to do that. Um, that's one option. Another option is to, you know, bring the town meeting and see if we can get the, the full amount. But you know, we've, we've hit the, the, the residents for a lot in the last so many years, and um, it's difficult to, to say, hey, we need $3 million for, for a short piece of, of roadway. Um, so what's the approximate cost of doing that? It's about a $90,000 cost. $90,000. To resurface. Like I said, it'll buy it six to ten years. Um, it could be longer. But, again, we want to make sure we get the drainage in. We want to make sure we get granite curving and sidewalks um, you know there's a lot of some utility poles that we'd like to move that would uh, help widen out radiuses to, to make better traffic vehicle movements especially Green Street if you come on Green Street onto north and take a right 
there's a pole right there at the corner that forces people to go into the other lane when they, when they turn right. That shouldn't be like that. We should, that should be moved off the road, open that radius so that it's a nice, clean, smooth um, turn. So um, then 109, um, if we don't resurface it, we, we're going to be out there. Uh, like I said, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Um, we'd be out there multiple times. And I'm afraid that if we, we don't do something now, we are planning on having a reconstruction project on 109 to put onto the Transportation Improvement Program with the state and federal money. It's already on there. It's, it's not officially on there yet. So we're, we're working towards that. We're going to put a, a committee, a community committee together to discuss features on 109, have a public informational meeting, and in the meantime that um, the uh, PNF and PIF will be submitted to the state to get a focus number to get us funded, put us in a funding mechanism. And that's about a six to ten year window to get funding for that. We're looking at a 15, around a 15 million dollar project. Um, so the town would be responsible for the design and if it's, if it's accepted and funded, it would be probably 50, close to about $15 million project. It would be from the town line at Millis out to Hartford Street. If we went all the way to the town line, it would be um, a little more expensive, which is might be difficult for the uh, state and federal government to fund us. Anything over $15 million, that's kind of, the, kind of the breaking point where they say, well, that's too big of a project, let's phase it out. So that, that's the game plan. So. But in the meantime, we still need to consider what we do with the surface of, of 109. And our, our thought is to do the same kind of uh, surface treatment we did from Causeway Street to the Millistown line. If you look at that, that's not a, um, a full pavement uh, job. That's a bonded wearing course, and it, it, it performs really well under high traffic conditions. And that's what it's a perfect perfect option with the road being built well um, to get that, at least that armor coat of surface out to the Dover town line. So is there just, you say six to 10 years on the, on the, on the tip, and I know that for a while we were trying to get the most free on the tip, but we didn't get to it. It's not a popular project for the state to yeah. build. But from the, the 109 standpoint, you say six to 10 years from today, in other words, 20 Correct. Correct. I mean, a lot of times when, when a product's shovel ready, then there's other products that, that they have problems with their easements or whatever they have, and they're not ready to go, they'll move us up. But again, you know, we're looking at a design project. Uh, it's a $15 million project. We're looking somewhere, could be $1.8 to $2.0 million for our design that we would be responsible for. But the benefit is that you get 15 to $20 million Worth of would, would it make sense if, if we were to look at that to do the, do the North Street design together with the 109 design, recognizing that you have to pay some of those for yourself if you're not going to get that whole thing on The, the design on North Street is almost done. It's, it's, been, it's been taken, we, we almost finalized it right now. So to put it with that design, because that has to go to the 25, 75%, 100% design stage. And the design for North Street is the full-blown curve. It's full-blown, but it's also things, not just the it's also modified right now from what it was before. Mm -hmm. It had the replacement of the culvert at Ferry Street, 
I took right, the initiative right, to, yeah. we went and inspected that and we can actually get away with just doing some minor repairs and getting 20 years out of that culvert still. It's un uncharacteristically for me mm -hmm. that when it comes to North Street, the one thing that I'm thinking about is the more complete redesign of North Street. What, what I'm thinking about is the, the citizen clamoring for better sidewalks, not just white stripes on that grade. This is your side, this is the car side. Um, I'm thinking about the, re the, the potential impact that a redone North Street, complete with good sidewalks, could potentially have on the businesses that we have going all the way up to Pine Street. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of how Green Street looks so much nicer after we did what we did to Green Street and think about how much nicer the downtown and its radiating road, uh, streets would look if we did this thing the right way. And as I said, uncharacteristically, I'm sitting there saying, I wonder if we ought to ask the public and then revisit in six to ten years whether this might actually be a time when it would be worth at least asking the question. If they say no, then we go back to the that's, that's what I'm trying to, you know, see what, what's the better route to do. Okay. You have a couple of comments in the QA. Yep. As part of it, which I think you want to look at that for 109. At 109, that's, that's going to be part of the discussion right. with the committee as well as the public informational meeting. There is a cost to the town, um, you know, upwards of millions of dollars for that. And then I believe there's a maintenance fee to that, but that can be, that can come out in the, in the conversations when we, uh, when we meet about that. That cost comes through on uh, people's electric bills. They pay it on their electric bills. <coughs> Because we, we have not, you know, we, we've done it here and there in terms of sidewalks and improvement. We've not done it downtown. Right. And it would be nice at the end of the TIP process, but I'm not all done together as well. The state will only pay for a certain amount of things, but you can get enhancement grants for the downtown area. You know, I know Sarah's been working on different things, and, um, uh, you know, we're looking at, want to get stamped concrete for the, the crosswalks, something that doesn't break up. With a snow plow, you know, unfortunately, you know, bricks putting brick walkways in, you know, having an inlay is not bad, but having a brick walkway and you see what it does over the years, it deteriorates. If you go put a plow over it, you constantly it's a constantly maintenance nightmare sometimes. So, we want to, you know, keep the character of the town, but you know, depending on how we do it, um, I think the crosswalks on Green Street came out well, those are the stamped concrete uh, ideas. They've, they've improved over the years, so uh, some of those things can be incorporated into the design as well. That person, I think that's the kind of the art of the project. You know, and I think it's, it's the estuary bike driven. It's not great. I mean, it's the sidewalk should be. I don't think you can always point out how curly stripe on the road. Do you, do you feel it's feasible to put it on this year's town meeting one? I'll be this year. So that would push us. That would push us into 2023. 20, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, if you did it this year, because you have to then, you have to then fund it after. Fund it after. I guess you really can't put it on there. That. 
Would you, would you put the design money for the nine hundred as well, or just the design street? money for North Street is, is already taken care of? But I mean, the design for one hundred nine. Oh, the design for one hundred nine. We would still we would would be another year off before we can really get that design up and done. I mean, I'm not averse to it. I think it's a project that's worth doing. Um, the only the only reason I probably I probably haven't thought through well enough. But the only reason that I was thinking this was the year to do it is if. If we're pushing, if we're not pushing to do it, if we're putting it on the docket, and the real issue is, we want to ask the public, do you want to do this, rather than wait a year from now to ask, do you want to do it? I'd rather answer that question now because if the answer is no, then we're to your ninety thousand dollar resurfacing. We don't want to not do or something. Or we could we could hold it together one more year. Yeah. That serve with our resources. That's an option too. But even there, we're still, so a year from now, we're asking the questions. What I'm saying is, like, well, I don't ask the question now. Uh, but and we do have a light docket for town. That would be a big to do this year, but we do have a light docket. Yeah, you can open the, you can open the warrant next day or next week. Mm -hmm. Go to open and close it and have an article on there. Again, I may not be thinking through some of the practical, maybe that's a bad idea for other reasons, like, like yeah, then you have to do an override, then you got to do an election. So there may be reasons why it's a bad idea, but. I'm looking at this as this seems like it might be a good thing. It seems like a good number of the public would like to do it. And so for me, the article is more like a question for the public. Do you want to do this? And I'd rather know the answer to that this year rather than just hold it as an open question until next year. Uh, maybe it doesn't, maybe operationally it doesn't happen. You know, you know, you can hold everything together for another year. But I know driving down here tonight in the dark, I sure get a bunch of bumps on North Street. <laughs> I can just imagine what next year is going to be. I mean, I know I know North Street was was supposed to be funded years ago, and it's been lumping along over the last so many years. It's, it's our worst street in town. We we realize that, and you know, it, it's just the, the funding mechanism to to get that done. I think for a long time it was sort of a hope and a prayer. Yeah. yeah. So we're always going to be ten years away from doing right. it. Right. Right. <laughs> it just seems like there's other things we're doing right now around downtown revitalization, and it's like you know you you kind of do this, but then you don't do that, and it's like maybe this would be a time to. To at least ask the question whether people think it's a good idea. When I checked with the state, it was we were project number twenty six to twenty seven out of twenty eight projects on the list, and by the time you get funded for that, um, you would understand have to... there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> there is a chance. But... So, well, let me ask you a question. Um, obviously, there's somebody who's asked about North Street um, underground utilities. Is that something if we put the article on for this year, you? Can is that enough time for you to investigate and determine? We could get a cost proposal. We could get a conceptual cost proposal for that. Because obviously um, that's going to increase. I know it, there, is, there is a charge to utility bill, but there is some upfront cost that a town has to correct. incur for that. I know for 109, I was told, I believe, I don't know, Steve, maybe you can shed some light on that for um, underground utility costs for a major construction project. Well, Ditch Engineering just worked with the town of Weston in their town center. Exactly what you're talking about underground. We just finished the project, like I said, just closed uh, place. But their cost from Eversource was between ten and fifteen million dollars. Yeah. All the infrastructure, the manholes, the conduit, getting the wires down. Is there a yearly there. fee on that as well? I, I don't think so. I think it may be through the okay. ratepayers, but the upfront cost to the city or the town is, is quite substantial. It could be two different things where you paid all the costs up front or you pay a three or four million dollars with a 
cost mm -hmm. per year for so many years as well. So, but it is. So it's not, it sounds like something you've been investigating. Yes. Yes. Obviously, that was the motion for change if we're looking for additional money beyond the three and a half. Any other? Any No. I mean, as far as uh, the snow, the snow. Yeah. Oh, you can do the snow declaration. Ah, the snow declaration. But it's not going to snow again. <laughs> where are where are we on the? I assume we've gone through it. So we are as of today, um, with the last storm and what what, what we have for outstanding, we're about nineteen hundred dollars over budget, which is is still okay. But we don't have all of our invoices in from salt and different um, uh, equipment repairs. But as far as the uh, cost from salary and from the operating part of the expenses, we are about $1,900 over. Christine, what are we carrying for next year right now? $80,000. Oh, okay, so we're good. All right. Any questions? 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 for FEMA reimbursement if the state agrees to approve it, which we would get up to 75% of the cost back for the storm back in January when we have the 22 inches of snow. But again, it hasn't been approved yet, but it's, we're working towards it, working towards that goal. So one of my experiences recently was about with one of your employees who's on the Conservation Commission, and my wife is the chair of the Conservation Commission at the moment, so she was trying to schedule a meeting on a day when it, in the evening when it was supposed to snow. And the problem was that the uh, employee from your staff had to go to sleep because he had to wake up basically at midnight to plow all night long. Right. And so that just brought home to me how, uh, how uh, diligent your employees are when the snow I am I am very fortunate. I have uh, I have a great staff and great, uh, great, great employees. So I'm very, very fortunate here. Motion, yes? yep. I move that we declare a snow emergency and authorize government spending. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. I'm going to take an item out of order here because I see Charlie Harris in the back and I'm sure he'd love to sit through the rest of this agenda. But Charlie, did you take him off by the car show? Thank you. Thanks. Thank you all. Charlie Harris, I put on the Midfield Card Show every year. And uh, <clears throat> I'm asking this year, there's a misprint here, but it's uh, Sunday, June 26th. And um, everything will stay the same. Uh, this is my 20th anniversary of doing the show. So uh, I'm looking forward to trying to get some uh, special league cars and maybe some celebrities at the show this year if I can get it in time. So you, you had to know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were the criminals. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that get, we get arrested. Right. Um, Christine, any questions? No, we, uh, Charlie and I have discussed some changes that will make to the, the licensing agreement uh, if we're in favor of it. Pete? I know that the uh, energy committee is hoping to have some electric vehicles. I think part of your thing is you connected with them yet? Yeah, Christine Barrasso, I believe. Uh, she spoke with me today, but I wasn't, you know, at liberty to say whether or not I could have her. But I told her I would. I provide space, and uh, 
I even made signage for her, and uh, she was very, very pleased with the, with the idea. So, okay, so Christine, you're satisfied we're good on all fronts? Yes, I'll work through the language of childhood. Okay. Any questions? Okay, so you want to, from Sunday the 26th, do you need a setup day, rain day, anything else on the 26th? That was a regular uh, Friday and Monday. And a rain day, I missed by two days. Another uh, Endicott Estates uh, car show just uh, put theirs out for the 10th, which was going to be my rain day. Okay. So I'm looking for the 17th now, July 17th. We have any comments on the 17th? approve the request to uh, hold the 2022 Medfield Car Show uh, target date of Sunday, June 26th, with both Friday and Monday being set up and take down days, and a rain date on July 17th uh, with the same Friday and Monday uh, set up and take down days. Second. All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Aye. back. Thank you very much. Good luck. All right. Uh, Hilly. Thank you for having us here tonight. I know it was on short notice and I really appreciate everybody's effort to put us on the agenda. Uh, I do have to say it was my fault. Uh, the state is giving us very short period of time to comment on this stock proposal. Uh, but we do feel very strongly that uh, um, has, uh, should have a voice in, in uh, the crafting of this proposal. And um, you know that greenhouse emissions is a key topic, not only for the Energy Commission, but we know that the town worries about the sensitive vote at the last town meeting. And I can tell you that in the many conversations that I had in the last year with residents, it, it's a very important issue that keeps coming up. Um, adding to that, you probably heard yesterday the release of a new UN report on uh, the climate state of climate change in the world, a pretty dire report uh, that shows that uh, really the conditions right now are worse than the world models had expected them to be, with permanent damage already happening, and um, the, the window for action is really closing very quickly. Uh, I think the final, the final language Report says any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing uh, window to secure a livable future, and that window closes again in this decade. So, really, there is urgency to what we do. Now, um, with that in mind, we can only act locally in Medfield, but we also need to empower the town uh, to act, and some of that relies on action in the state. In this case, it is building code that is uh, put up by the state and uh, there's going to be uh, several uh, types of building codes and uh, we would like to encourage the state to have a menu that the towns can choose from according to their needs and ability and willingness of the residents to, to, to use. Um, the, um, the current legislation in climate change in Massachusetts uh, passed last March permits uh, that the, uh, the state to a uh, limit of at least 50% uh, greenhouse gas reductions 
by the year 2030, uh, with reaching net zero uh, by 2050. And in order to do that, uh, the towns have to be able to choose tools that allow them to do that. And the, the building code is one of such tools. So as the state is looking at modernizing the current building code as a regular cycle of, of uh, their uh, modernization of building codes, um, we would like to urge the state to empower the, the towns that are ready to choose a level of building code that would allow them to reach their net zero goal. Unfortunately, um, right now, the, the proposal that DOER has put out is falls broadly short of allowing towns to reach their own net zero building, uh, net zero goals. Uh, and um, we have received this letter that you have in your package from uh, experts in the state uh, that are asking elected officials and appointed officials in the Massachusetts towns to sign on to this letter to urge the OER to reconsider to give a broader and stro stronger menu of building codes for the towns to choose from. And I would like to invite Jim here, who has, is our expert on buildings, uh, to give us an overview of what these different levels of code uh, entail. Great. Thank you, Hilly, and thank you uh, all for having us here tonight. Um, the first thing I want to be very clear about is tonight we're not asking you to vote to endorse or adopt any of these codes. Right now, it's about um, providing some feedback and instruction to the DOER about how we think these codes should be improved. We'll be back later when they issue, particularly the specialized opt-in stretch code, to talk further about that. Um, there's also a, a ton of technical detail in that packet, most of which residents won't really be faced to deal with, so I want to um, Put, sort of put those aside and focus on the things that I think would be you know, most directly affecting the town and the residents. Um, things like embodied carbon, which is uh, the carbon that is required to manufacture and transport and install materials. Not something that the homeowners would deal with, that's something the architects and builders would decide. So it wouldn't really affect uh, uh, directly the, the, uh, the owner and the consumer. Um, the things that you know will be noticed is in this comment the way they are structuring it. Um, they are requesting that uh, a much harder push on electrification, and therefore not using gas in any new construction. Um, uh, and that's really important because in the climate roadmap, uh, the Baker administration's climate roadmap, it explicitly says we need to permanently and soon stop burning fossil fuels. So it makes no sense to uh, continue to allow burning fossil fuels uh, in a new code. Um, but it's also incomplete, um, because right now it focuses only on new construction, important, but uh, there's much more uh, carbon reduction needed in renovations. And so we need to see what the recommendation would be about how the codes affecting renovation uh, uh, will change as well. Um, it's also very cautious, and it doesn't go as far as what's practical and affordable today. Um, for example, 
the uh, particularly the opt-in specialized stretch code. Um, really, the only difference between that and the new stretch code is the fact that if you are using gas, it would require solar and wiring for future electrification. What the uh, uh, this coalition is recommending is that that be pushed further uh, toward more of a passive house uh, kind of uh, uh, standard, uh, which would be much lower energy use um, uh, than you know, what this current code uh, talks about. Um, and what that allows us to do is that for if we push the new buildings a little bit further, because it's easier and less expensive to lower the energy use in new buildings, that gives us a little bit more leeway in renovations, um, which are harder and more expensive to do. Um, so with that brief introduction, I do want to leave you know, as much time as you need to ask any questions about this and any other technical details you'd like to know, I'll do my best to answer. So uh, what is it that we're asking the OAR to do in this straw poll? Just have a stronger stretch code? Correct. Yep. Okay. And I guess that, you know, the, the again, the big thing here is to remove uh, the option of using gas in new construction. Yeah, really sense. focus on electrification. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the, probably the biggest thing. I think it makes sense for us to jump on board with this recommendation of the OER. Gus? So I do not uh, the counter voice here. There's uh, a couple things. First, there's a reference to a letter that was submitted prior to this. Was that the letter? This wasn't the letter that went to the MSBA around that zero. What is the, there's a letter that apparently was submitted by several, indicated by several town officials in that, but it didn't identify which ones they were. And I'm trying to understand what letter that was, we're talking about that went in before this one. That was the letter from about a year ago? That's what I'm asking. Okay. I don't know what yeah. it is. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm aware of one letter that had some signatures from officials here in Medfield that went to the MSBA in the middle of our project. Right. Uh, asking the MSBA to basically yeah. mandate net zero, and, and that's not the letter we're talking about. No. Because folks here know I went ballistic on that, and I remain ballistic about yeah. that. Uh, okay, so it's some other letter that's, that some yeah. group of people sent in. So, Correct. here's... I thought the letter, though, that you're talking about is the letter that Pete and Fred signed. It is. It, is. it wasn't to the MSBA, though. And that you have posted the yeah, there was the ballistic letter. Uh, yeah, this was the ballistic okay. letter. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, wasn't, so, it wasn't to the MSBA, I think is the confusion. I think it was okay. the letter. Okay, maybe one of the provisions was. Uh, okay. Was this, yeah. yeah, but that's all I needed to know. So, okay. Before my time, don't shoot me. I wasn't here. I have to hear that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to better behavior in the future. We're here to discuss what we need today. Now that I've just gotten some clarity on that, let, okay. me, let me comment on a couple things about the, this whole, I, I went through a whole packet and looked at everything. Um, philosophically, I have a basic problem with town, when towns send a letter, send letters to the state that say, please establish regulations 
that will coerce us to do something. I have a fundamental problem with when towns do that and say, please, please, please tie our hands. Very rarely is there is am I happy anytime we do that. So first off, the whole point of this letter in terms of asking the state to do something is bothersome to me. As a pure letter providing technical inputs to what the standards would be, if it was written as a neutral standard, we've looked at what you've done, here are some suggestions that we think that you need to improve the strength of your, your stretch net zero code. I would have been far more receptive to this if that had been a, a letter that was purely on technical grounds. There were several things that jump out at me here. Number one, one of the main messages in this material is that this technology that we're pushing is cost effective. People should want to do it. And so when you have cost effective solutions, but your answer is, and therefore we want you to coerce people to do it, I question whether it's as cost effective as everyone is saying. Because if you can make the cost effectiveness argument, make the cost effectiveness argument and get people to do this. I have solar panels on my roof, not because anybody told me I needed to have them, because I looked at the at the at how that worked, I looked at the finances, and I shaded in my own views about environmental responsibility, and I wound up with a $35,000 solar panel array on my roof by choice. And so far, I'm pretty happy with it. I like the I like the, the SRACs, I like I like the net metering. I like the fact that we're doing, you know, if I really look at my energy usage now, as far as what shows up on the bill, I've cut down, I've cut my energy usage in that sense down by a whole lot. So I'm not philosophically against the direction. I'm against when we use coercion to force people to do something we're telling them makes good economic sense. I think that's the let, cheap way yeah, to let, make the argument and not have to do the hard work. Let me answer that because I think, you know, the point there is really a signal to the building industry not necessarily to consumers, because the building industry will always prefer, hey, we've done it this way for 10 years. If we have to change, it's hard. We don't want to do that. Don't make us do it. And this is just a signal for them to say, it's so let me tell you, So let me tell you a story. When I was well, there, I would suggest that, I mean, I think it says nearly 13 million square feet of building meeting the standard of how many yeah. builds are in front. I don't think they've responded in the way you, you know, are. There's, there's so. still plenty of builders and plenty of HVAC technicians who are behind the curve. Sure, but, but informed buyers aren't going to buy old technology if they're convinced that this, this actually works. So the issue is education. But that's so that, that's point but one. But you're, you're expecting the homeowners to educate the builders, which I don't I'm, know. I'm expecting people who are advocating for this stuff to work hard to educate homeowners to make cost-effective, logical decision for themselves. In some cases, people won't have the cash to do it up front. So I have solar panels because I had a way of financing a $35,000 project. And yes, I'm getting a good return. Not everybody would have the means or the ability to finance a $35,000 project, even if it did have life cycle benefit. You talked about renovations. Now, when we talk about new, incidentally, the idea of going off gas, I just happened to catch there was a patch article about Brookline being shot down by the AG's office for trying to go fossil free. So there's legal issues around how feasible that is, but that's either here or there for an input to DOER again. When we start talking about renovations, what 
economic analysis that has been done in terms of the impact that enhanced regulations for renovations is going to have on the average homeowner who's looking at renovations? There's, there was none provided in the DOER presentation. Correct. Okay. So that concerns so me need to do because we're doing a, we're, we're promoting a philosophical slash political view, and we're really not that worried about the impact on people in real terms, and that, that's a concern to me. You know, one of the things that got me the maddest? Several, no, no, no. Several years ago, when we were looking to become a green, the, the issue, I was on the Warren Committee at the time, we were, we were asked to take a look at adopting or committing to the, the stretch energy code because it was one of the requirements for becoming a green community. The first time it came before the Ward Committee, we shot it down. And we shot it down on the, on the basis that pre-committing to a code, that, that it was one thing to commit to the code that was in place, but we were told, no, actually, you're pre-committing to wherever that code goes. And we're saying, we don't even think that we legally can pre-commit people who are going to follow us to do something because we, without even knowing what it was going to be, decided that we would do that. So, but nonetheless, it came up before the Warren Committee, after I left the Warren Committee, and probably after you did. It came up again, the Warren Committee, and the second time, or I think it was the second time, recommended approval, and the town decided to commit to the energy stretch code. Now, one of my concerns about that is at the point that all towns in the state of Massachusetts commit to the energy stretch code. It's no longer a stretch code. It is now the code, and the stretch code can go wherever it needs to go. What really hacked me off in this thing is that the people who have written this letter have said, oh, no, no, what we want now is we need to incentivize the net zero stretch code. So we want to take the money that we've, and we've benefited from these grants of being a green community. So I've, yeah. I've, I've been partially compromised. <laughs> In my, in my reluctance to commit to this stretch code because, yes, we have seen money come in. But in this document, it says, no, what we need to do now is tell the state, stop paying people for adopting the energy stretch code. If we have money left over, well, then we'll let them in the second tier. But we now need that money to go to the net zero stretch code. This is very Pavlovian to me. We got the dog <laughs> to sit up for the biscuits. Now what we need to do is sit up and give us, you know, let's shake. And I, re I, I just have a negative reaction to that because I see a cynical manipulation in this process that bothers the heck out of me. End of speech. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made my point. Yeah, so I will say, I, yeah. I, I don't endorse every single thing Gus said. Um, <laughs> I generally agree with him on the conclusion. And, and partially here, too, is you know, this is a lot of bold in here, and consistent with the general approach that people take letters like this, which I think is, is generally not particularly effective or warranted. But that's the that's the tone. Um, there's also a lot of footnotes which I haven't had a chance to read. All of a sudden, saying footnotes from the study and I have certainly found, having done a lot of reading on this stuff, that a lot of times the, the footnotes and the links don't necessarily add up to the headline of the conclusion. So there's, and there's, there's obviously a lot of that. And a lot of this stuff, since I haven't just approved, I'm not going to sign on to a long way. There's lots of bold stuff in here without having gone through. I, I share some of Gus's similar philosophical concerns about sort of trying to go over our own head to say, please tell us to do this. Right? And I recognize there's some of these things that's difficult in that situation where you are actually, and we experience this in other areas as well, 
shackled by the state. Um, but I had that same philosophical concerns. A lot of the stuff that we were already right, was, was really preventing us from doing a lot of the stuff in town if people really want to do this stuff. Um, and so uh, I'm not inclined to sign the letter. I mean, frankly, I doubt that, that adding our signatures to it would be the thing that pushes it one way or the other. But there, I don't think there's enough time to go through this. And there's so many points in here 20 points, 25 points, and all these other things. Um, 20 points. So I went through all the, the footnotes and everything else. So I, I'm not going to sign. I appreciate you bringing it to us and not just signing it and sending it in. But um, I think there's um, there's more to it than, than this. And so I don't well, I think you know to answer one of your questions in terms of some of these things that we do on our own, and there are towns like Cambridge in particular that is pushing their own kind of net zero code. It just makes things harder on the construction industry. You know, but I think one of the points they try to make here is let's have a consistent code rather than having town to town, you know, just make life more complicated. Um, um, you know, to your point, Gus, the, you know, that high level is the, you know, opt in. And if we don't want to opt into it, we don't. Sure, and, but, but, but and yes, the going, that going says to it let's incentivize. So if, I mean, we opted into the stretch energy code with the incentive of having being eligible right. for grants to become a green community. I'm saying he made the decision to do that. Right. And then ten year less than ten years later, the same I'm guessing, the same people who are advocating for that at the point in time when we did that are now saying, well don't give that to them anymore unless they get to this next higher level. There was some material thread that you sent out probably a year ago that caught my attention. It's got me a hot button for me. Because the comment was, well, we got everybody to sign up for the green communities and the, and the stretch energy code. That's not doing enough for us. We need to go to the next step, which tells me the people who are setting this up are manipulating a political process and are doing whatever is necessary to, that's needed to get people to do things. Now, I've already hammered on that understand what I see the Energy Committee doing and what it stated that it wants to do here in this town around educating people, making sure people understand what's important, finding ways to make these things as, as you know, easy for people to do and as beneficial for people to do. I am absolutely in favor of doing that. I want, I want our town to retain its auto autonomy from, a, from an authority standpoint. And more importantly, I want people to retain their autonomy to be able to make their own decisions, but I think that town government, and for that matter, the state, if it chose to do it, could do an awful lot to help educate people. You know, heat pumps, who knows how heat pumps work? You guys know how heat pumps work. And they, I, given that, Fred, you said you just put them in, I don't think Fred would have done it if it didn't actually really make sense on an economic and a philosophical basis. So, it's, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, if you I, want I, people to be responsible, environmentally responsible, you don't do it by putting a ring in their nose and yanking them through the process. You do it by getting people to understand this stuff. Let, let me provide a, a, an alternate point of view on that, because I don't think they're cynically manipulating anything. Some of them are. Ten, I can assure you they have, because they did it 40 years ago with nuclear power. I've been there. But you know, 10 years ago, when the Green Communities Act and, mm -hmm. and we adopted Stretch Code, the you know, scientific consensus on the pace and the magnitude of climate change was one. And so we said the latest 
uh, report and over the last few years, reports are showing the impact is bigger, it's happening faster, and it's worse than we expect. So it requires a change in strategy, it requires a change in building codes, it requires pushing things further than this group wants to, but it's not pushing further than what is possible. Because already, like when, they, when they talk about passive hubs as the opt-in stretch code, the Mass Save program today in new construction is incentivizing what's essentially passive hubs. So it's doable today, affordable today, practical today. Your, your words basically said it's not happening enough, therefore coercion is required. If there's incentives to get people to do the right there's, thing. There's coercion in all building codes, right? Now you understand why I don't want to increase the level of coercion in building codes. <laughs> I, I, I've actually studied, you know, 40 years ago, I was studying the building, the Massachusetts Building Code Commission's energy section. So my experience with this goes back 40 years. But, it, uh, but it's... And, and what I learned was that the people who had the money were making one set of decisions around energy that the people who couldn't afford the spec built houses didn't have that because the people that were buying spec built houses couldn't afford it. Uh, so I'm very sensitive to cost impacts on people and what they do. I'm very supportive when I hear things that this is cost effective. I'm saying, okay, the argument's there, but nobody wants to put that kind of effort. It's far easier just to tap government to tell people to do it. Don't worry, it's good, trust us. And I'm saying that's not the right way to get it done. I'm not I think there is, there is with some of these because we've seen in other areas as well. I think there's a there's sometimes a disconnect between what is promised up front and what's actually 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 happens. It's not just the um, you know if you look at some of the certifications and things like that, I think they actually deliver on what they promise. There's some questions in that area as well. Um, so I think particularly moving in this direction, um, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't really But that, you know, that's why they refer to things like the passive house standard, yeah, which yeah, does require that, ongoing testing. I'm not saying it's commissioning. I'm not saying, it's, it's, I'm not saying yeah. that it's cynical yeah. manipulation. I'm endorsing all of my colleagues' views here, but I do think, you know, given from my perspective, you know, what I've said before, and the lack of time as well, that I'm not going to let it well. He has a lot of great, I have a public policy here. <laughs> <laughs> different perspectives. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. There is something.
the, uh, well, I personally want to address what you said about the education of consumers, and uh, I find myself in that position uh, where a relative just had her uh, teeth breakdown, and I tried to get an income, and I did find myself in a position where I have to find not only uh, contractors who were willing to talk to me, but I was literally lied to and I've had contractors in the last three months tell me that heat pumps do not work below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So, so I mean, the education is, I mean, we can't only educate consumers. We really need to go further. And, and uh, I do think that the building industry is in need of, you know, Professional modernization, too, you know, and that that is one way of, of sort of doing that is, is you know say this is this is the modern standard. I mean, building codes have always been updated, thank God, because we don't have lead pipes anymore that go into houses and outside toilets and whatever. You know, so this is this this code is really designed or should be designed to meet the law that is present in Massachusetts, and right now it does not. Modify the, the law in Massachusetts. It does not give the tools to the towns that are willing to um, go to Mithril to actually do that. And I think that's a concern, you know, that DOER is not able to provide the range of options to towns that options that we, you just said, Brookline and Cambridge, are interested in. Well, because there's laws that and they can't do what they're trying to do. My, my point is, this kind of whole hog direction, I, I don't think that's, A, I don't know that it's all totally valid in terms of what people are saying where you need to be. And B, it's being done sort of in a vacuum. Wait, 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 wait. you just said. Where, I don't know where the end point is. For some people, the end point is this absolutely has to be done. We have to absolutely get to net zero. We have to, we have to get there. We have to be there by 2030. Why, why wait till 2050? Let's go even sooner. And well, my first question, my first any, question has to do with what's the hmm? second? Any, any carbon you take out now is not there. The year after and year after. Sure, sure. Oh, absolutely. My issue is coercion. And, the re and what's behind that issue is when people are pushing for coercive standards, what's the economic analysis of the impact that has been done that shows clearly this is the appropriate thing to do because the economics are here and people can handle it. And I don't see that. I just don't. I don't see that having been done. Um, I think and what I hear is an argument that it is cost-effective, but then it's like, mm, but we don't really have that information. Well, for, for, for renovation now. For renovation now. So why are we pushing for it in this? Because that's a big in the standards. So we're, in we're the, dropping a cost on people because well, some people think that that's more important than whether people can afford no. the, the standard for the new construction, the DOER spent a year, mm -hmm. had a number of consultants do energy models, cost estimates, do all this, and with the standards they have in there, uh, they show that particularly with the mass save incentives, uh, it's less expensive now than mm -hmm. To build code. So the new construction they got it covered. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. They, they we need then code for for renovation and they should do a similar analysis and prevent present those data. I totally agree with you on that. 
So I didn't see that nuanced view in this letter. Yeah, no, that's legitimate. There is a fallback question I'm happy if I may. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, by the way, about timing, a couple of things. A couple of your comments regard regard timing and short term and long term. Short term, we agree with the aggravation that this is quick. The state just came out with their draft straw proposal. By the way, those, that phrase, straw proposal, says to me they're looking for feedback. They want the feedback. And, and I talked to the guy behind it today, it was six hours ago, and he said exactly that. He said, can't say it publicly, but that's exactly what they have in mind. They want the feedback. They're going to get feedback from people behind the scenes. They want the feedback in front of the scenes. And that would be us. That would be this kind of a letter. It's very public. But the timing, the aggravation is, it just came out a couple of weeks ago, and they're asking for feedback by March 9th. The next Energy Committee meeting is the next day. They don't even have time to put the Energy Committee meeting first. So I appreciate the aggravation about the timing. I appreciate there's a lot of uh, footnotes. Sorry about that. About the 10 years, it's a very good point. 10 years ago, the regime was presented as such and such. And now, how dare anybody say it'd be different? I got it. It's aggravating. The three of us don't want to be here causing aggravation. We really don't. You're not the one that's written the letter, I don't think, right? <laughs> the reason we're here, the reason the letter is written, the reason for the bold points in the letter, that what, what you said, that it's all italicized, demanding sounding, and all that stuff. All of that is because the first thing Hilly said yesterday, 6 a.m., was the unveiling of the latest UN report, which was worse than, as Hilly said, worse than anybody could have imagined. The future we're well into. We said uh, climate crisis is coming. Ah, it's here. It's here. We're in it. People are dying. Anyway, so you don't need me to go through all that. You can read the, what is it, 1,400 pages that report? Anyway, but the, the, the press reports are, are very good about it. But the point is, this is why, this is why what was presented 10 years ago as this should work is no longer good enough. And it's not our fault. It's not the fault of the letter writers. It's not anybody, one, any one group's fault in particular. It is our collective fault as humans around the globe for not responding more better, more quicker. And, or maybe somebody didn't calculate correctly. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The reality is what it is. So, unfortunately, whether you sign this tonight or not, you're right. It doesn't make a whole huge amount of difference. But unfortunately, we're going to have to keep coming back for one thing or another. We wouldn't have any other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. All right. So get back to the what did you call it? The the big thing you blew up about a year ago. I don't mean to get back to that. Yes, I think, we do. I think we do. the, uh, the action item here, Fred, we do. was whether we're going to sign this letter. Yes, you said no thank you. We have, well, we have another, uh, a number of other items on the agenda. I'm, I'm going to so leave with one I'm going to give you 30 seconds thank you. to address the ballistic letter. Thank you. And, then we're and that on. goes like this. So uh, all three of you are not going to sign. Maybe one of you is going to sign. In any case, would you give us the uh, permission, perhaps that's the right word, 
for two of us to sign with respective titles, uh, uh, Medfield Energy Committee. Well, you've already signed so, You've already signed it. Already I signed, signed it as a professional, exactly. and, and these two would, could sign it as Medfield Energy Committee, only with your permission. My, well, first off, Fred, thank you for asking the question this time. You, you taught me last year. <laughs> I heard you. I, my personal view. And you too, Mark. Is the, the trick in signing and then using your official title is it's very difficult for people who are reading it to know that you are not speaking for the town. You're only speaking for yourself. So if, if you sign and you sign it with your name, I have no problem. If you sign it and claim the title when you sign it, you're conveying an impression that the town, especially from an energy commitment. Well, it's just your point, guys. The way that letter is referenced in this letter here, right? It says a year ago, elected appointed official signed to the United Town and City representing the supporters of the state population, voice strength of support for the net zero treasure. I'm sure that that included Medfield and Matt on the basis of your signature piece. Right. I have nothing to do with the map. Well, I understand. It doesn't matter. I got the point yeah. last year. This is why we're asking explicitly this way now. And and you noticed in the last year's letter or this year's letter, there's lots of people with lots of titles in lots of towns and cities. So, the question is open. Would you, would you, could you please? My personal view is it's fine for you to sign it with your name. It's not appropriate for you to sign it with a town title. Pete disagrees with that. So, I have one vote, Pete has one vote. If you're I, I agree with Castle. Are we done? Are we done? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, Colby Smith is up. Colby, I, I assume you are Colby S. Thank you for waiting through all of this. Uh, we are now going to have a public hearing for the following solicitor license application uh, from Power Home Remodeling. Uh, Colby Smith, Avery Zoshak, and Mitchell Whittingham. So thank you, Colby, Avery, and Mitchell for waiting here. Um, and once you're all on here, we will have our hand. Uh, yep. Give me one second. I'm just uh, going to tell you. I saw Mitchell on there as well. Okay. Maybe Mitchell oh. Okay. Give me one second. I'm just texting the nice enough. To, if you're the if you're the spokesperson for the group, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm the spokesperson. So yep, I'm Colby Smith with uh Power Home Remodeling. Um we sell we don't really sell anything. It's free free estimates on roofing, siding, and windows, but our company is a full exterior modeler um out of Waltham and also Marlboro. But we're the largest exterior modeler in the country now. Um, and yeah, we we're just looking to solicit in the town of Medfield. That's all. What did you say? What time are you looking? Um, well, for dates, we're just looking as soon. We've already handed all our applications. Um, we're just looking for as soon as possible for the date. Um, and then it'll probably go until probably just the end of March. We'll probably be the latest that I think we'll even be there. And we our hours are usually 12 to 6. Because one of the applications asks for three months, the other one asks for the duration of the permit. So if you're looking forward uh, to start through the end of March, essentially one month? Yeah, I mean, so basically, like, we're in a certain um, group of towns for three months at a time. 
But um, so we just asked for the duration of the permit, however long we can get the permit to last. But honestly, we really only need like a month will be fine. But if you can give us six months, a year, whenever we can have it till is great. But we really need a month. You're making me a little dizzy here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll walk away. Nice basketball. Um, all right, so this is going to go door to door, 12 to 6. Um, have, have we checked the police chief on this? All set with these three. All set with these three. Um, police chief. All right, Pete, any questions? No. Gus? Pete? I, uh, yeah, we talked for one month. This is what we're based on. March. For the month of March, it, it called the uh, the reason I'm asking the question is I don't think we would do a year for sure. Um, I I can I think door to door solicitation is a hard job, so I, I'm sympathetic to you. I know from comments that come in from the, the residents of the town, they typically don't like a lot of door to door. So I don't you know I, I think you want to kind of like be doing it for the amount of time you really need it for. Uh, and not kind of stretching it out. Uh, it's got no reflection on you or your company or anything. It's just the way people react. So, yeah. Uh, um, just to be clear, too, we only go to each neighborhood like literally one time. It's not like we're going to keep on going around to different, uh, to the same neighborhood over and over. It'll be one day at every single neighborhood. And then from there, we won't be back probably until the next group of people from our company would apply again. And that probably won't be another. Probably six months, three months, I would, I would assume. You said Power Remodeling is the biggest exterior remodeling company in the country? Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we have locations in 18 different cities now. So we're in Austin, Atlanta, Phoenix, uh, Denver, so kind of all over. But yeah. Where, where are you headquartered? Uh, Philadelphia. Yeah, uh, technically Chester, Pennsylvania. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was my only question, just to make sure we were clear on the time. Mm -hmm. One thing we do ask is that when you are going to be out there, if you could let the police department know where you're going to be. Yeah. So if you get calls, they at least have a heads up then. That might be good calls about. Yep, I'll call dispatch. Uh, I Every town we go to, I call dispatch to let them know. What, what streets will be on so that, you know, if, if they are questioning, oh, who is this? You know, they'll be like, yeah, we, they checked in with us. When you're, when you're going door to door, do you have like a company shirt on and an ID? That... Yep. I actually, I'm wearing it right now. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, put, I put it on just uh, to make sure you guys can see. But yeah, we have uh, shirts. Typically, our guys will wear like IDs just you know, it makes people a little bit less resistant to begin with, but definitely a minimum, like probably polo, maybe even a hat says power. Any comments from the public? Question? Yes. Just uh, Chris Potts, just actually more for Christine. When you mentioned that the police chief um, reviewed it, what is, what is, what is, what does the police chief look at? There's a background. It is a background. Yep. Great to know. Anybody else? Any comments from people on Zoom about this? All right, none. I declare the public hearing closed. Anybody else? Peter Gus? Any discussion? Uh, I don't have nope. All right, we have a motion. I move that we approve the request for power home remodeling to uh, conduct door to door solicitations during the month of March between the hours of 12 to 6 p.m. 
with the understanding that uh, you'll notify the police department in what areas you'll be working in uh, before you actually move out into those areas. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Well, thank you. You've got your uh, license, or your, yeah, your sister's license, so good luck. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry for making everyone dizzy. But, uh, <laughs> we, we, we deserved it after making such a four-minute conversation. So. All good. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. Thank you very much. All right, next up, uh, discussion, elementary school workshop for Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Work slide. Um, and we'll be here. And so, yeah. And just, just so we'll operate like one of our regular meetings, people have input, comments, otherwise. If anyone has anything in advance they want to submit to be discussed in the workshop, you can send it to Christine. The only, the only thing I'd like is coming out of the workshop, however, School committee does or doesn't want to be about public hearing. I'd like just to set the date for that. We will discuss that. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, next up, vote to accept the resignation of Michael Metzler from the Redfield State Hospital Development Committee. We have his letter of resignation here. Um, and the only question I had was his stated reason for resignation is he's also a member of the board of CAM. And is there anyone else still in the board that he's a board member? Yeah, I, I, uh, Pat, Pat Casey is in market. When we finish with uh, this resignation, I'd like to actually talk about the other person that's in that same boat on the development committee because I've, I've had a conversation with Pat. Seeing as you're here, Mark, I'd like to, I think we have a resolution for Pat that will be beneficial. I just want to check it out. My only concern is just because it's not on the agenda we're discussing in particular. Uh, he, he know who Pat, Pat, yeah, Pat knows that I'm going to carry this oh, board. Oh, so. All right. So let's get a motion to accept the resolution to accept the resignation of Mr. Metzler from the Medfield State Hospital Development Committee. I move that we accept the resignation of Michael Metzler from the Medfield State Hospital Development Committee. Second. All in favor? Yes. Aye. Opposed? And, and Mark, can I just roll right in? Right ahead. So I, I had a conversation with Pat. So the Development Committee uh, doesn't have a lot of people on the committee, and right now, as a practical matter, because Pat and Michael both had to recuse themselves because of the relationship they had with Cam, uh, the, the six of us have been operating with four of us, which is the minimum for quorum for the committee. Uh, and more importantly, we haven't gotten the benefit of, uh, of both of Michael's and Pat's uh, inputs. Uh, Mark, I know that Pat had talked. Pat took your advice and checked in with the AG's office. The AG's office gave him a letter, uh, basically suggesting that. No, it's the ethics commission. It's the ethics commission, not the AG. Is that part of the AG's office? No. No. Okay. Well, okay. I'll have to learn more about where that is because last time I had to check on something, I think it was the AG's office I checked, but it. That's fine. It doesn't matter. The point was he got a letter about what he could do, which on the surface sounds like he would be able to rejoin the committee. Uh, what I understood is that you and he had a conversation, Mark, and you still had reservations about whether he could do it, given the fact that we don't yet, I guess, have a, a contract in place. You know, we're still at a point where we're we're we're, we're going to have to negotiate a contract. Uh, the issue, the question was, we need Pat. He's he's the corporate knowledge from the from the master planning committee. He was the guy who was 
responsible for all the modeling work that we did. So having him not as part of this conversation definitely damages our town's ability to carry this thing forward in the best way possible. But the one thing that Pat and I talked about is if he rejoined, but as a non-voting member, does that address any lingering concerns you had beyond the parameters that the Ethics Commission laid out for him? It, it, it was not, uh, uh, it's somewhat, can you, first of all, can you hear me? Yes, yes. yes. Yep. Okay. So I had a, a phone conversation with him following his receipt of a very detailed opinion letter from the State Ethics Commission. Now that letter is confidential unless he chooses to disclose it as far as the Ethics Commission is concerned. As in any ethics situation, uh, I've been pretty consistent that uh, I am not the gatekeeper. The State Ethics Commission is a state agency that is charged with enforcing Chapter 268A, the state ethics law, and they have uh, regulations in place and they have guidances and frankly, they're the final say. They operate on two levels. If you think you have an ethics issue, you can go to them in advance for guidance and they will provide you with guidance as they have here. Uh, otherwise, they have an enforcement mechanism uh, if there is a complaint made that a public official is, uh, is in conflict, uh, uh, then they conduct an investigation and enforce the state ethics uh, statute and regulations. As I said, in this case, they gave him a very complicated and detailed opinion uh, based on the information he'd given to them. And he was having difficulty understanding it and under what scenarios he would be okay and what he wouldn't. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I'm not comfortable going into what our discussion was beyond that, except to say it's, it's not my decision. I'm providing input to somebody to assist uh, that person. The final say is the State Ethics Commission. Um, these situations are very fact specific. However, the important thing to understand is it doesn't have to be a for-profit situation. It's a fact that it is a, an entity separate and apart from the town with separate uh, interests of its own, uh, which are not necessarily consistent with the town. And so he's put right in a position where decision-making in two with the town and decision-making with the foundation or with the CAM, whatever the, they are, uh, are not necessarily the same uh, uh, same interests. Appreciate the confidentiality that should be maintained. My question really is if Pat rejoins the committee as a non-voting member, he is not involved in the making in making decisions. He's simply providing us with the kind of background corporate knowledge he had from when he was on the master planning committee that will help us in our process of trying to negotiate an agreement with a developer. Is there still a problem, but from your perspective, is there still some disqualifying problem that would prevent us from tapping the probably the most knowledgeable person we could possibly tap? Yeah, the vote, the vote, the voting part is not, is not, is not the final end because 
he's providing input and if hypothetically uh, he's involved with another group that has a separate interest, that could influence the uh, information that he's, that uh, the analysis, he's, analysis that he's providing to the committee. The committee's an advisory committee anyway. So, you know, a vote is almost irrelevant. Um, but I don't think that resolves it, but he would have to go back to the State Ethics Commission and say, I want to give you these additional facts. Does that change the guidance you've given me? That's, that's the only protection. That's the only thing that he can rely upon. This from a different angle, Mark. If, from what I've heard you say, would I be correct in saying that it's up to Pat to satisfy himself that the guidance he's gotten from the Ethics Commission leaves him, you know, puts him in a personally acceptable position doing whatever he does. And it's possible that somebody along the way could challenge that if they wanted to, but so he has to, he has to weigh that possibility. I don't know why anybody would do that in this circumstance, but let's assume theoretically at least it could happen. Are, what, am I hearing you say that it's really Pat having to listen to what the Ethics Commission tells him? And I guess the new information you're talking about is he's going back to say, what if I'm a non-voting member? How does that change things? And if the guidance he gets from the Ethics Commission allows him to feel sufficiently comfortable doing rejoining the committee in the in the role that we're talking about here, that should, from your standpoint, with what you know, and the fact that you're not responsible for policing things, that should be sufficient for him to be able to make a decision. That that's a fair statement. Okay, that's that's. I'll I'll close the loop with Pat and. Well, uh, thanks, Mark. That helps. Thank you, Mark. All right, next up, we have a vote on a determination um, by non-elected municipal employee of the financial interest disclosed by Building Commissioner Zoning Enforcement Officer Gary Pelletier. Um, so he has disclosed that his duties require him to participate in a particular matter. And he may not participate because of the financial interest that I am disclosing here. He requests a determination from his appointing authority, which is us, on how I should proceed. A particular matter is the requirements under 780 CMR R105.3 of the construction documents that accompany certain building permit applications and 780 CMR R107.1 information on construction documents. For his position, he is required to approve submitted plans by homeowners and contractors with and for building permit applications. His financial interest is that he is an officer, director, trustee, partner, employee of the business organization and the business organization of financial interest in the matter. He operates a small part-time professional service business providing design and building plans for residential modeling projects, $500,000 for range of services. The service would not be provided for private permit in the town of Medfield or for any project that I would approve to permit or inspect for code compliance. So as I interpret this, he is requesting permission to operate a part-time business providing design and building plans for residential modeling projects in towns other than Medfield. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's what I understood. Okay. Mark, uh, Mark or Christine, any input on this? No, I talked to uh, Gary about it. He is also uh, providing the same paperwork for Millis. I know he works as a system building director, uh, commissioner at Millis. Uh, and he is 
So this, so this is actually another application of the state ethics law specific provision, and it has an exception in it, which is what's in front of you. You ultimately have to make a determination that his financial interest is insignificant and he can therefore proceed. One thing that's not in the application, sort of the total volume he's anticipating from this, he's putting it on a per-project basis, but he's not giving a total of what he anticipates this to be. I mean, that is the one initial reaction I have. Pete, do you have thoughts or questions about this? It just struck me that it, it, it doesn't really conflict with his work as the building commission. So I had two questions. Um, one is, is this a sole proprietorship? So he doesn't have any business partners? Correct. Right. Okay, so there's a, my first question was, are you are you in business with any contractors, uh, but it's sole proprietorship? Um, and then the second one I don't think is an issue, and I'll, I'll look to my two colleagues who are lawyers. He only, he basically said, I wouldn't do this for any projects that are permitted in that field. Where my head went next is, well, are you doing it for any developers who do projects in Medfield? And I don't, I think that's too tight a constraint to say you can't do any work. For one thing, you don't know what projects developers might be or for, what project, what kind of town they might come to Medfield. So it'd be a hard thing to proactively know about. I don't think as a standard it's appropriate to even try to enforce that kind of thing. But I wanted to raise the question. And we can we can have him in your off, but my understanding is he's working directly with homeowners or doing some remodeling in their homes. Oh. So he's doing some plan evaluation for them. Okay. Uh, and he's either reviewing plans that have been given to them by a developer to determine whether or not that's the appropriate way to go, or advising them on how to do their renovations, but okay. not doing the work. But I would have that concern as well, yeah. which is you know, if he's getting business from developers' plans that are here. Right. That obviously potentially prevents conflict of interest. Right. That even though he's not doing his own plan, someone says, all right, you have to do this. Right. 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 But I think obviously different standards apply. I, I would say, I would prefer limited to doing work with homeowners, but allow. Sure. Right. In other words, if he's hired by an individual homeowner in another, uh, another municipality, just advise on the building code ensuring it enforces. Obviously, that homeowner is not here, but I would say that he shouldn't take work from anybody who's going to be reviewing because you do have the potential here for all of these. You know, for, for, you can recuse yourself, but also have ongoing business relations. I don't think Gary right. would do anything that was remotely untoward, but you also wouldn't want to have a homeowner thinking, well, or anybody thinking, well, he approved that permit because he's working for that developer right. in a different town. Right? And that's why he, because there is some discretion in interpretation of these codes. Mm -hmm. And when a permit is required, how many permits are required, it's, the rules are there. You know, not always 100% approval. So I, I would, and I'd have to have them too, but I, I would want to limit it just to do a work directly for homeowners because I think there is that potential for conflict. You wouldn't want somebody to think, that the decision he made on a particular permit was influenced in any way by the business relationship. 
he may have to resubmit the request for determination with that limitation on it if he's comfortable with it. Or we or we can approve it with that limitation. I, I, I would just I would also add the factor that uh, I assume he's, you know, they make it clear that he's not performing this work during hours that he's uh, supposed to be doing medfield. I don't know if he's on fixed hours or flex hours or whatever, but clearly that it's outside his work hours and location as a medfield building commissioner. Would it be enough to say he has to do this on a non-interfering basis? with his responsibilities to the town of Medfield? Yeah, how have you? I, have a, I think I have a solution. Why don't we put together a letter saying you would see as restrictions to doing business outside of this. Mm -hmm. Have that conversation with Gary, and then we can sign okay. that once we do the letter first. Uh, we're, we're putting off the fire sheet contract, right? Um, yes, till the 15th. We've done the still emergency. Um, next, most released a request for proposals for a head end facility. Cable communications located on a portion of the DPW Town Garage property at 55 North Meadows Road. So we have the existing ground lease with Comcast. Correct. And is Comcast giving this up, or are we required to reissue this RFP? We have to reissue the RFP. They would like, we didn't, they would like to be able to just continue. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Pete, any questions? No. Gus? The only question I had was the was the past pricing, but also how we set the pricing that's in the RFP. I, um, so I, I had conversations with um, the representative from Comcast, expecting them, they gave kind of a business pitch is what they typically do. Dave Matson and I discussed it as well. Um, his, his take on it was we should have been looking at 3% escalation a year at least. Um, so he felt for wireless facility, he recommended between 40 and 50. Um, this isn't quite a wireless facility, it's kind of unique. We didn't have any comps, we actually asked to put an assessor to see if she had any comps. She reached out to her substitute group, they didn't really have anything like this as well. So Dave, took a look at the numbers that we came up with. He just went up 3% escalation based around looking back, you know, where we first started at 25,000, but also trying to compare with the wireless market. So we built $38,000 and then bid was um, appropriate. And then the other question was, that there was a diagram of the building and it talked about an addition. Is the building going to be modified or? That was, so that was the language that was, so there was a reference to an addition. The addition was already been complete. Where the old building was like 350 square feet. It's now okay. 750. Okay. okay. So that's just that's what they call the new part of the right. old building. Anything else? Motion. I uh, move that we release the request for proposals for head-end facility slash cable communications located on a portion of the Department of Public Works Town Garage property at 55 North Meadows Road. I second. All in favor? Aye. 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 All right, next, motion point, Town Administrator Christine Schweiler as the Chief Procurement Officer. Was she already the Chief Procurement Officer? I was when I was the Assistant Town Administrator. Having just finished my recertification, uh, part of one of the things we talked about is making sure that that is updated and on the record. So now that I'm now the Town Administrator, so it's not like the tippy top Chief Procurement Officer. I move that we appoint Town Administrator Christine Schweiler as the Chief Procurement Officer. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Aye.
Next, uh, both to accept the resignation of Jim Brand from the Affordable Housing Trust. I move that we vote to accept the resignation of Jim Brand from the Affordable Housing Trust and wish him all the best with the issues that he's working on. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Next, vote to approve one-day beer and wine licenses for the Council on Aging from 4.30 to 8.30 p.m. for the following events at the Center, uh, Tuesday, March 8th, 2022, for the Painting Event, and Wednesday, March 16th, 2022, for the annual St. Patrick's Day Dinner. I would just comment that I'm <laughs> kind of curious about the women's painting event. No, guys, I thought about <laughs> saying what I think you were about to say. I would advise against it. Okay. I'm advising it. Is this still being videotaped? I think it would be a fun event, and I think as many women as can possibly make it should go. Uh, I move that we approve the one-day beer and wine licenses for the Council on Aging from 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. for the following events at the Center, Tuesday, March 8, 2022, for the Women's Painting Event, and Wednesday, March 16, 2022, for the annual St. Patrick's Day Dinner. Second. All in favor? Aye. All right. Consent agenda two items. The Medfield Garden Club requests permission to post signs. I assume this is at the four locations, February 27th, 2022 to March 7th, 2022, to advertise Art and Bloom at the Medfield Public Library, which will take place March 4th and March 6th. And Sean McCarthy, Medfield Baseball, requests a permit to hold a parade and place signs celebrating opening day for Medfield Youth Baseball and Softball on Sunday, May 8th. I move that we approve the two items on the consent agenda. Second. In favor? Aye. Any opposed? All right, meeting minutes, September 28th, 2021, January 25th, 2022. We look at these, right? Not that. They are cool. Cool. Any comments, questions? I don't remember. I had one point on January 25th, which Christine, you may have. It's all in the Google thing. Eh? There was only, um, I was confirming, shoot, the wording, I forget what it was now, but it was, it had to do with the wording said that we had changed something to not be something, and I thought it was exactly the opposite of what we actually did. Have that written. Oh, oh, no, I can tell you what it is. I actually printed that one page up. This was the financial policy. So, this is the January 25th, uh, 2022 minutes. Uh, item 10, there was a motion, Mr. Murphy, motion to reapprove the financial policy to amend the $25,000 limit for other items to be included in the capital budget down to $15,000 and eliminate the requirement that an unforeseen emergency capital expense will not have to be paid back in future operating budgets for the department requesting. So it said we were eliminating the requirement that they wouldn't have to pay it back, and I believe we eliminated the requirement that they would have to pay it back. I think the not should be The not shouldn't be in. So with the confirmation that that is correct, that's the minor take. Can we get a motion to approve? I, I, I know that I added some changes too to try to clarify things. Right. But I, and I saw all the changes as the last person, and all of them were minor, except for that one thing. So uh, I, I, move, I move that we approve the meeting minutes, the VOS meeting minutes from uh, September 28th, 2021, and January 25th, 2022, with the minor edits submitted in the Google Docs. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Now, the new updates. 
just want to let everybody know the Warren Committee hearing has been set for March 29th at 7 p.m. Here is uh, We have not set the location at Wilmington here or the Pelletier building. Next meeting dates, March 8th, 2022, the workshop of the school committee, March 15th, 2022, March 22nd, 2022. March 29th. All right, second report, Pete. I've been to a couple of the Tomcat meetings, which is the uh, Town Medville Climate Action Plan group that is writing the uh, uh, plan for the town, which includes Hilly Pathos, uh, Jim Nail, and Fred uh, Davis over here tonight. They're making good progress on that. I'm mainly watching. Uh, I went to the uh, Medfield Food Cupboard at their new location and so on with that. They've got a much better facility now. Their life has to be much, much better. Uh, and Medfield Foundation has been having a whole bunch of meetings, so I, I am on, I think you, you guys are both aware, I'm on the Medfield Outreach kind of strategic planning committee right now. So they've been having regular meetings. The survey that Chelsea brought in was kind of the major step in this process, but uh, I can attest that they've been putting a lot of time and effort into getting that to get a handle on what the total needs of the town are. Uh, beyond that, I don't think I've been involved. The development committee's been kind of quiet right now, so with the exception of the discussion <coughs> with Casey around uh, where, how we could get to be able to once again tap his uh, corporate knowledge on the master plan, I think those are the major things that I've been involved with the last few years. I don't think I have, we have an affordable housing trust board meeting this Thursday. Oh, um, we did get an email today the housing production plan was approved by the HCD, so it's good for the next five years, um, effective the day tomorrow. It was fast. Yep. All right. Um, that's it for that. Um, all right, we have, we have to go into an executive session for the purpose of discussing the purchase exchange lease or value of real property to with the Medfield Hospital. Discussing this in open session will be different regarding the addition of the town and we will not resume an open session when we continue. I move that the Medfield Board of Selectmen go into executive session for the following purpose to consider the purchase exchange lease or value of real property. If an open meeting may have a detrimental effect on the negotiating position of the public body and the chair so declares. Our, our discussion is of the Medfield State Hospital. Uh, and uh, we will not re reconvene an open session at the conclusion of the executive session. Second. Second. Peterson? Yes. Berman? Yes. Okay. 